Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, and you're listening to The East Meets the West with my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. It's been a long time since we last spoke, right, Pat? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely been literally tens of hours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. For those who don't know, we, we um, by the time you hear this, you will have heard the episode, but we recorded uh, what we call the Primer episode, which was basically um, it was something to help new listeners kind of understand what the heck we're talking about on this show. And we had a couple of great guests on that one. And today is no exception, because today we are breaking our usual form once again. And we will not be discussing a Venom film from Shaw's or a Terrence Hill-related Spaghetti Western. What we've got today is a very special guest returning to the show. Someone who has so many irons in the fire that we're going to have to do another interview with him over on Then Is Now podcast. However, for today... I'll just let him tell you all that he's got going on and just say that we've got a man who joined me on episode two of The East Meets the West, the host of Monster Kid Radio and the hardest working podcaster in the industry, Derek M. Cook. Welcome back, Derek. It's good to be back, man. Really awesome to be back and so excited to talk about a couple of awesome movies with some great podcasters. So it's going to be fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. So glad to have you again today. So tell us a little bit about what you got going on, Derek. Oh, God. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will warn you, we've, we, we've been going off on tangents the last couple episodes, so don't be surprised. It's okay if we go down a rabbit hole or two. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned Monster Kid Radio. We are, uh, in, I don't know when this episode's going to go live, but we are in uh, episode 520-something or other at this point of the podcast, so we have been just plugging along, doing what we do over there, talking about classic and Sometimes the not-so-classic monster movies, and it's still as much fun as it is now as it was at the very beginning, if not more so. Made a lot of great friends over the years, uh, you included, sir. <laughs> and it's just, it's an awesome time, you know, where you talk about a monster movie or a topic involving monster movies every week. 
So that's what we've been up to over there. And then everything else I've got going on, I'm writing, I'm working on game design. We've got a couple of YouTube channels up and running. Just really just, yeah, like you said, hardest working man sometimes it feels like. I'm not getting paid, but, you know. Right. <laughs> I'm working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hardest volunteering man. There you go. Right. There you go. There you go. The hardest volunteering man. You got movies and stuff that you do on Tuesdays and Saturdays too, right? Oh, uh, thank you for yeah, thanks for reminding me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As if you didn't have enough on your plate. Well, no, uh, on Tuesday and Saturday on Twitch. If you just look up Monster Kid Radio at twitch.tv. On Saturday, we do what we call the Monster Kid Movie Club, where we show anywhere from eight to ten hours of monster movies. And we try to come up with a theme for every week that we do. Like, we recently did, man, what have we done in the past? We've done vampires, we've done uh, horror hosts, we've got a Peter Cushing Day coming up. So we do that every Saturday, and it's a live thing. So there's a live chat going along, we're chatting it up with people. I come in every once in a while, talk to people directly. On Tuesday, it's a little bit more uh, laid back, a little more uh, manageable. Because <laughs> we do, we, we call it the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. We typically do science fiction movies at that point, and then end the day with a talk about a Star Trek episode. We've recently been doing a lot of serials, though. So we've shown things like Spy Smasher and Secret Agent X Nine, uh, X Seven, X Nine. One of the yeah, whatever X... the Secret Agent is. Uh, they yeah. all kind of blend up for a while. Uh, we did the clutching yeah. hand and that sort of thing. And, and that's been a lot of fun, too. And again, it's a live conversation that we're having with people while the movies are playing. It's the only time I'm going to encourage people to talk while watching a movie. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. And Pat, what do you got going on this week that's interesting for us? Uh, let's see. We have uh, we have episode 260 of uh, Throwdown Thursday, which also happens to be on the sixth anniversary of Throwdown Thursday. We started June 24th, 2015, and now here we are, six years and 260 episodes later. Um, we're very excited. You know, we're looking for, uh, you know, to have a, a real good time with everything, and, you know, hopefully we get a lot of good feedback as well from folks. So uh, even if we don't, uh, we'll still have a good time. So <laughs> uh, that's what we nice. got. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, folks. So like I said previously, we're going off the beaten path a little bit today, and we're going to be couple, covering a couple of different films. We've got coming up The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires from 1974, which is a Shaw Brothers and Hammer Films team up. And we've got the Spaghetti Western Requiem for a Gringo from 1968. So let's get into it. From Warner Brothers, who crashed the action barrier with Enter the Dragon, comes a new dimension in Black Belt Thrills. As Hammer, masters of horror, and the Shaw Brothers, masters of kung fu, join forces to create the first martial arts horror spectacular ever filmed. word is vampire. The horror is real and very close. 
What you must understand is that they are already dead. I'll fall before them, and you too will be eternally damned. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Starring Peter Cushing and Julie Edge. Filmed entirely on location in Hong Kong. And co-starring David Chang, a new Kung Fu champion in the Black Belt Hall of Fame. Strike at their hearts! <laughs> My brothers cannot survive another attack, Professor. We've destroyed half their number. We know these creatures can die. Don't give up now. It's a fight to the death against the sevenfold forces of evil. As Hammer and the Shaw Brothers together create the first martial arts horror spectacular ever filmed. In Transylvania, in 1804, a lone figure makes his way through the countryside and into the towering castle Dracula, where he summons Count Dracula himself. The figure announces in his own language that his name is Ka, a Taoist monk and the high priest of the Temple of the Seven Golden Vampires in rural China. He goes on to tell the Count that the Seven Golden Vampires' power is fading and he needs to restore them to their former glory. Dracula considers the offer and accepts on one condition, that he uses Ka's body to escape his castle, which has become his prison. Despite Ka's pleas for mercy, the vampire displaces himself into Ka's body and then triumphantly leaves the tomb for China. A century later, Professor Van Helsing, played by Peter Cushing, gives a lecture at a Chungking University on Chinese vampire legends. He speaks of an unknown rural village that has been terrorized by a cult of seven known as, oddly enough, the Seven Golden Vampires. A farmer who has lost his wife to the vampires treks his way to the temple and battles them. He was unsuccessful as his wife was killed in the fight, but in the chaos he grabbed a medallion from around one of the vampires' necks, which he saw as the vampire's life source. The farmer fled the temple, but the high priest sent the vampires and their turned victims after him. About to be cornered, the farmer placed the medallion around a small jade Buddha statue before the vampires killed him. One of the vampires spied the medallion around the Buddha and went over to collect it. However, at the moment the vampire touched the Buddha, the creature was destroyed in flames. Van Helsing goes on to say that he's positive that the village still exists and is terrorized by the six remaining vampires. He is only unsure of where the village lies. You know, you'd think that people who lived in a constantly terrorized village would eventually move away, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. Well, there's good schools in the area. Uh, you know, the nightlife can't be beat. I mean, you got to look at the property values and everything else, right? That's yes. true. No wonder the vampires want it. They have two Denny's, so that way you can always say, let's go to the good one. <laughs> they just don't have the House of the Seven Gables for the vampires to live in. Yeah, one gable per vampire. There you go.
So most of the students in uh, Van Helsing's class disbelieve the story and they end up walking out on him. But there's a student named Si Ching who informs Van Helsing that the farmer from the story was his grandfather. He proves it by producing the dead vampire's medallion and asks Van Helsing if he would be willing to travel to the village and destroy the vampire menace. Van Helsing agrees and embarks with his son Leland, Si Ching, and seven Kung Fu trained siblings on a dangerous journey, funded by a wealthy widow named Va Vanessa, v I almost said Van Buren, Vanessa Buren, whom Leyland and two of Ching's siblings saved from an attack by the Tongs. On the journey, the group are ambushed by three of the six remaining vampires in a cave, along with their army of the undead. The group are quickly engaged in battle and soon kill the three vampires. The remaining three retreat, taking their army of undead with them. The following morning, the party reaches the village, partly ruined but still populated, and prepares to make their final stand. They use wooden stakes as barriers and dig a large trench around them filled with flammable liquid. In the temple that evening, Dracula, still the size as Ka, calls on the remaining vampires to kill Van Helsing and his party once and for all. The vampires reach the village, and soon Van Helsing's group once again arrives to do battle with the last of the gold vampires and their army of the undead, resulting in nearly all of their party and the villagers being massacred. During the fight, Vanessa is bitten by one of the vampires and quickly becomes one herself. She bites Ching, who ultimately throws himself and Vanessa onto a wooden stake, impaling them both. Elsewhere, the last remaining vampire captures Ching's sister, Mai Kuei, and takes her back to the temple in order to be drained of her blood. Leyland steals a horse from one of the dead vampires and pursues. With the army of undead undefeated, Van Helsing and his remaining party follow to help Leyland at the temple. Having reached the temple, the vampire straps Mai Kuei to one of the altars. It is about to drain her blood when Leyland intervenes. Just before he's about to be bitten, Van Helsing and his group burst in and Van Helsing destroys the last vampire. The survivors depart from the temple save for Van Helsing, who feels a familiar familiar presence, a presence he's not felt since... Uh, anyways, he comes face to face with Dracula in Ka's wow. body. <laughs> Discovered, Dracula reveals his true form and attacks Van Helsing. The ensuing struggle is the ultimate battle of good versus evil. So, so we'll start with our, first guest, with our guest first. Derek, when did you first see this movie and what was your first impression? Uh, when did I first see it? So... I don't think I've told this story in a while on a podcast, so this might be new to anybody who's listening to me for the first time. I did not grow up with the Hammer films. I was a Universal kid uh, when I finally got into the Universal movies until I met a guy, and I wish I remembered his name. He was a local radio DJ in the town where I was living and working at the time. He had come into uh, the Blockbuster video where I was working because, you know, film nerd, 80s, 90s, you have to work at a Blockbuster. Same. Uh, he, he'd come <laughs> in for an event that we were doing, and he was covering for his radio station. He found out I was the only monster movie fan there, so he and I ended up talking all day. And he asked me about these Hammer films, like I've never seen them. I, I know what they are, but I've never seen them. So he raced home between sets, or between whatever they call them in the radio business, I don't know, and <laughs> came back with a handful of VHS tapes. Uh, they were recorded in that S or EP or SLP mode. Yeah. So it was eight hours of Hammer films. One was the Frankenstein films, one was the Dracula films. And he's like, you can borrow these, I just make sure I get them back. I'm like, yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, and I just mainlined them all. So I, and they were in order. So when I saw this one, it was after I'd seen all the other Dracula films uh, with Christopher Lee and everybody else. And I remember thinking, this is definitely different, but I like it. And ever since, it's been one that I do end up going back to. It's actually been pretty influential on me when it comes to some of the stories that I like to tell, or back when I thought I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up, that sort of thing. 
Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite movies uh, when it comes to the vampire, I'll call it a genre. Um, and I've just grown to love it even more and more over the years. Nice. And when you used to do a podcast called 1951 Down Place when you and a couple mm-hmm. of buddies talked about Hammer Films. You, you covered this one then, didn't you? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, did we? I, I'm oh, gosh, trying to remember because I used to listen now. to the show. <laughs> yeah, and, and we keep threatening to bring it back, too. It's just timing, you know. Right. Um, if we talked about it, you know, I don't know if we did, because I think we were trying to do the Dracula movies in order as we went along. Because one of our co-hosts, Scott Morris from Disney Indiana's podcast, had never seen all the Hammer films. So we were trying to do the Dracula films in order. So I don't think we ever got up to this one. But I know that when we first started the show, we did kind of a, these are our top five or top three, whatever, Hammer films. And I made sure to include this on the list. So I might have brought it up then. Okay, cool. So Pat, now is this one that maybe you had caught at some point in your youth? Or when was the first time you saw it and what was your first impression? Uh, the first time I saw it was way back when I was watching it to do this show today. Um, <laughs> this is also my first Hammer film that uh, I am aware of. Oh, wow. wow, get out! Really? Yeah. Oh man, wow! Uh, so right, this we're just was shut the recording off right now. No, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just excited because that means there's so many awesome movies out there for you to to discover. That that's amazing. Yeah, like I'm I'm very much looking forward to. You know, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing facing off, you know, various, uh, various ways. I would, I think, uh, I would have enjoyed this a lot more had the Venoms been in it. But, you know, <laughs> I could say that about anything. Like, you know, you could say that about, like, you know, a Disney movie. Like, it would have been way better if the Venoms were in it. <laughs> but yeah, this one, uh, this was the first time I've seen this. Obviously, you know, as a, a huge Star Wars guy, uh, I'm very familiar with. Peter Cushing as you know, Grand Moff Tarkin, but this is the first time I think I've seen him outside of that role. But I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Uh, it was, it definitely has uh, the, uh, the the suspension of disbelief almost down to a science. It's like, oh, I need proof. Like I'm, well, I'm a big time vampire hunter, but I don't believe that you have vampires in your village and that's where you're from. Even though I just gave a whole lecture on it and was totally bummed when people walked out saying they didn't believe me. I'm not going to believe you now. How do you like that? How do you feel? <laughs> well, I have this uh, this rad belt buckle. Oh, I'm totally convinced. Let's go. I mean, that's essentially like. You know, it's like the the vampire championship belt. Like that's what that looked like. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. It's fun. You know, it's a uh, uh, it's definitely different from a lot of the films that I've watched uh, as a kid. You know, even some of the you know cheesier monster movies. But the one thing that it really reminded me of, and I think obviously this was an intention on the part of the the film I'm about to mention, but in 1987. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time, The Monster Squad, came out. And the beginning of The Monster Squad had, you know, a confrontation between Van Helsing and, and Dracula's minions. Oh, yeah. It was very reminiscent of how this film kind of played out. Like, it was the same style, the same aesthetic. Fewer fewer vampire women uh, eating armadillos and rats. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know... I can definitely see where the influence came from. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And I have some thoughts on that that I'll get into later on. But I, I did actually want to jump ahead a little bit in my notes just because you brought something up. And then I'll get into when I first saw it and all that stuff. Um, you had mentioned this would have been cooler if it had the Venoms in it. And I that's actually in my notes. I agree. I think if you know Chang Che had fully directed this film and the guys, the Venom mob were in this, it would have been an amazing film, a more amazing film than it is. And Derek, are you familiar with who the Venom actors are? Uh, I think the one time you've had me on before, we, we've talked briefly. Okay. About them, so, yeah, about we did them, Crippled so. Avengers. The actors yeah. that were in that yeah. originally were in The Five Deadly Venoms, and that movie was such mm-hmm. a huge hit. And the actors, in some form or another, there was about five or six of them, and they did a, a succession of about 18 more films where uh, anywhere from three to five of them acted together in a film. And they became known as the Venom Mob, and we've been talking about that on the show regularly. Um, also known as the Five Weapons Guys in Taiwan. And they're just, its we're at the point now, we're on episode, I think, 12, or I think this is going to be episode 14, but in talking about the Venom films, we've become so familiar with them as actors, um, with their, their capabilities in terms of uh, acrobatics and stunts and fighting and stuff, that they're just amazing. And especially in the later films, you can see their synergy. Um, and it's really too bad that this movie came out in 74. Had it come out like... Five years later, it probably would have starred the Venoms, and it would have been a completely different film, but I think it would have been just as satisfying, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Chang Che did uh, did direct some of the action sequence in this, but that's about it. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So I did want to say that, um, especially on this viewing, I just totally love this movie. I definitely saw this as a kid uh, one night with a friend of mine. I can't remember if I was sleeping over his house or he was over mine. We were like 9 or 10. We caught this on late night TV. And we, we knew back then, you know, in the 70s, who Peter Cushing was. And so and we were, you know, such horror fans, and we loved kung fu movies. And, you know, just to see Cushing's Van Helsing in a kung fu, movie kind of blew us away and it was scary too and i even felt even this time around i i found there were some scares and you know yeah all right the movie's been criticized because of the cheap bad effects and you know the the somewhat uh lackluster makeup and the fact that cushing hardly gets to fight at all in the movie but i really love this movie as well i thought just thought it was totally fun oh yeah um there, there are issues with the film of course there are you know it, it's later in hammer's development you know, it's in the 70s. I mean, Hammer's heydays were really, you know, in the 60s, I think. Um, yeah. And and no Christopher Lee. You know, that that's probably the biggest knock that this film has against it, I feel like. Yeah. You know, Christopher Lee did not come back to play Dracula. Uh, even though Dracula kind of sort of only technically in it for a few minutes or whatever, they didn't leave. He, he refused to do it or whatever reason he didn't do it. And to me, that's the biggest knock the film has. Otherwise, I just get totally sucked in whenever I see this thing. Uh, I'm fortunate in that I live in a city that has amazing movie theaters. And over the years, there's one theater, the Hollywood Theater, that has brought in Hammer films every once in a while. And they've brought this in as a 35-millimeter print. It wasn't even digital. It was an actual film print. Wow. And that, man, I don't think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a more fun time than I've had in that theater. And I go to that theater a lot. That was so much fun. That's cool. That's so cool. So this movie was directed by Roy Ward Baker, who also directed Asylum, which I may have mentioned. Oh, actually, I don't think I mentioned it on this show. That was the very first horror movie I ever saw. I was two years old in 1972 in the backseat of my parents' car at the drive-in, and I vividly remember this movie. Derek, I think I told this story to you once before because my mother and I couldn't remember the name of the film, and we called it Chopping Heads for years. That's right. That's <laughs> right. That's Peter right. Cushing. 
Um, but he also, that was a great anthology. It was uh, Cushing and Herbert Lom was in it. Uh, then he did The Monster Club. He did Vault of Horror, which one of the actors in this, actually John Forbes Robertson, who played Dracula, I think was also in that. So yeah, I thought he did an all right job. I liked uh, visually how it looked. I guess, like I said, Chang Che did, he's uncredited with directing some of the fight sequences. So it might've been something where, you know, Roy Ward Baker was like, well, I don't really know how to do a fight scene like that. You know, <laughs> let's get the expert in. <laughs> So, what did you think, guys think of the directing here? I didn't think it was terrible. I thought the the fight scenes were done fairly well, considering you know the level of experience that uh, that he had with them. Um, I think it helps that you have you know some people that know what they're doing in the fight scenes. I think that always helps. You know, when you have martial artists doing stuff. Um, I don't know who the choreographer was on this, but I I think they did a decent job, um, especially that that first big fight scene where they're kind of like getting to show off their prowess in like that little desert scene. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, you get to see all the you know what my brothers can do, and you get to see how they can how they can protect you, and you know, oh they're they're definitely gonna uh, they they'll die for you if they if they have to, which. We'll get back to that in a few minutes because I have some thoughts about the later scenes where it's like, hey, <laughs> I've totally changed my mind on this whole thing. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, you know, again, it's it's no it's no Shaw Brothers film, but it was better than uh, the Stranger and the Gunfighter. I'll give it that. Right. <laughs> That's funny. I like that one too, but <laughs> so uh, Roy Ward Baker was a name that, if you watch enough Hammer films or films from Amicus, which was kind of like the, the second tier big British product film production studio, you'll see his name pop up as a, as a director in a handful of movies. Uh, he is the director of Quatermass in the Pit from 1967, which oh, yeah. is probably one of the best British science fiction films of the of the 60s. It is phenomenal. Uh, and you mentioned Asylum. He did Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Uh, so, yeah, he did a lot of Hammer, a lot of Amicus. He had directed Christopher Lee in Scars of Dracula. So, I mean, he had a connection there. I guess, again, I wish Lee was in the film. Right. Uh, and, and a little movie called The Monster Club that has a song that will get stuck in your head the minute you watch the trailer or, or listen to the thing. So, yeah, I'm not going to go into that. Uh, <laughs> but that's got Christopher Lee, and that's awesome, too. So, yeah, I, I think Roy Baker is good. He's not my favorite Hammer director. Uh, that'd be Terrence Fisher. Um, right. Yeah. But, yeah, I think he did a yeah did good enough job for what it is. I, I feel like he made the right choice, or Hammer made the right choice in uh, allowing somebody who's a little bit more familiar with the uh, the Kung Fu style <laughs> to come in and either co-direct or choreograph or whatever the distribution of, of responsibilities were on set. I'm glad they did that because I don't know if Baker could have handled all those fight scenes the way that this film put them out. Uh, right. I don't know if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, oh, it did. And, you know, he also did Dracula AD 1772, and mm -hmm. Satanic Rites of Dracula. So, you know, he knew his way around Dracula, but, um, you know, it, it, I just wish there was a little bit more Dracula in this. Sure. You know. Yeah, that's the biggest complaint about the film, whether, yeah, it, it needed a little bit more Dracula. But this is what, the first of two co-productions they did? Right, because they did Shatter as well. 
which also just tanked. I, now, I've never seen Shatter. That's one I've been holding off on because I thought we'd talk about it on 1951 Down Place at some point. Uh, but from what I understand, that one just totally bombed. So yeah, and this I, one didn't do much better anyway. I saw Shatter a while ago. I'd have to revisit it again because I, I remember enjoying it, but not thinking it was or thinking it wasn't very it wasn't great, but it was enjoyable. It was a crime film. It takes place in London. It's got Stuart Whitman and Cushing in it. Um, it's also got Anton Differing as well as a bunch of Shaw actors in it. So right on. I may have to revisit that at some point again because it's a Shaw co-production. Ah. I'm just now noticing that the final date of production of Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires was on my birthday. So, Oh, nice. It was just meant to be that I would love this film, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, Pat, I, I looked it up while we were talking. The um, There were two martial arts directors, Lau Kar Leung. He's done, like, over 215 movies. And Tong Kai, who did about, about uh, 130 films for Shaw. So these guys knew what they were doing when they did this movie. You know, they had a lot under their belt even, you know, before uh, this movie. You can tell. Yeah. You can definitely tell. Now, one of the producers also, actually, two of the producers, uh, we have Don Houghton and V. King Shaw. And Don Houghton, of course, um, uh, he wrote, you know what, um, uh, Derek, I misspoke. I said that Roy Wood Baker uh, directed Dracula 8072 and Satanic Rites. Don Houghton wrote those. I misplaced right. my eyeballs in my notes. Um, you had said that, and it, it kind of caught in my brain. It was like, that doesn't quite sound right. Right. But... <laughs> I'm not 100% sure now, so I'm not going to say anything. So, yeah. I okay, apologize, cool. listeners. You can direct your hate yeah. mail to Derek M. Cook at... No, hey, hey, now, hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also one of the producers was a guy named... Or I think it was a guy named V... V the letter V-E-E. -E, v King Shaw. Um, he's also listed as a co-writer, at least in the credits of the movie, but I didn't see that listed on IMDb. But he also produced uh, The Mighty Peking Man, which was about a giant ape. And he also co-produced Shatter, which we talked about, the uh, uh, the other Hammer co-production that they did. So, which Can I ask, which version of the film did either of you see? Because there have been a couple of different versions of this that have come out over the years. There was one that was a little bit more on the Chinese mythology side of things. Uh, it's been re-released numerous times, like The Seven Brothers Meet Dracula, Dracula Meets The Seven Brothers and Their Sister, things like right. that. I watched, um, I have an old DVD that's part of the Hammer Collection that um, I watched that one, but I also, somehow along the way, I acquired a couple of digital copies, and I, I watched one of those, because there was a difference between the two. One was like four minutes longer than the other, and I watched the one that was four minutes longer, but I didn't notice anything extra in it. It was just crisper, cleaner, and you know a little bit more widescreen. One of the biggest differences is that uh, they keep replaying in slow-mo over and over and over again a lot of shots of the hopping vampires. So, yeah, that's that's part of the reason why it's a little bit longer. Oh, interesting. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> uh, which I don't... Whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Pat? Um, I watched the whatever one you sent over, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> that was... That was uh, I was pretty much just going to go off of your answer. But then you okay. said, like, three things, and I was like, I don't know. Whatever one you sent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I sent you one of the digital copies. But yeah, it was a nice, clean. At least you know the ones we've seen were nice, clean, widescreen versions. Um, I guess the um, the ones that are titled uh, what was it with the, with the Seven Brothers Meet Dracula yeah. are cut. Those were heavily cut when they came to America. Yeah, the original American release had about twenty minutes cut out. Yeah. So, which is ridiculous when you consider the movie's a little bit over an hour and twenty minutes. 
Yeah. Yeah, like how much can you cut out and still have like you know, any semblance of a plot? It's like, oh, I'm Dracula. I'm taking your body over at the end. Right. <laughs> Some of the backstory gets truncated a little bit. Some of the history gets truncated a little bit. Uh, when I saw it, you know, at the theater, the print that they had was not cut down, so there's a little bit more. It's just really cool to see it on, you know, see the the original as it was originally intended. You know, just. But I don't know how it's released on DVD and Blu-ray these days, if it's even on Blu-ray. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, there is a Blu-ray out there from Shout Factory. I'll have to check that out. Um, I'd love to get David Chiang on the, on the show. He's still doing stuff. That'd be awesome. So he played, he's Xi Ching in this. He's a big star in China. Still making movies today. So um, he was in, you know, a couple of the One-Armed Swordsman films that they did. And, you know, just a ton of Shaw movies. But uh, uh, obviously nothing we've covered so far. Although he looked familiar. So I feel like we had seen him in one of the movies we did, but I guess we haven't. Yeah, I'd have to go back and take a look. And then, of course, we've got uh, Peter Cushing in this. I mean, you know, what else can we say about the amazing Peter Cushing that hasn't been said before? You know, one of my all-time favorite horror stars. Derek, can you just tell us a little bit about Peter Cushing for those listening who don't know who he is? Uh, He's the man. (laughs) Um, You know, that's about... Now, Peter Cushing, uh, for a guy like me, I know him as... You know the the horror movie guy. You know, he's he's Baron Frankenstein. He's one of many Van Helsings that <laughs> battled the undead over the years. But he's done so much more than that. His name really does become synonymous with Hammer Horror uh, for a long time. But I think the first thing I ever saw him in, without even really realizing this was a guy that would be so important to me later, was Star Wars. You know, as as Grand Moff Tarkin, right? Of course. Um, you know, he's got. An extensive filmography. He's done everything from horror to drama. He's done comedy. He was in a movie Top Secret with Val Kilmer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's played Sherlock Holmes for various film studios and television productions. Uh, he's always got a, a presence, no matter what he's in. And his charisma, he, you just can't help but watch him, especially when he plays like a tragic figure. You just, man, you are just drawn to him. There's a you know, some of the anthology films that he did or, or portmanteau films he did for Amicus were just incredibly moving. Um, he was in Horror Express with Christopher Lee and Telly Savalas, of all people. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's been, he's got, like I said, a very extensive filmography. Uh, and from what I understand, he was just a complete and totally uh, late, you know, nice man and gentleman. I never had a chance to interact with him. I can tell you where I was when I found out he passed away. Uh, it was... Wow. Um, yeah, he's he's one of my favorite, absolute favorite actors, and if he's in a movie, that's that movie's already won me over. I'm gonna watch it. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I I knew who he was when I saw him in Star Wars. I I was like, oh my god, what the hell is he doing here? You know, <laughs> I was like seven. I I I think it's seven. I didn't quite know his name, but I had seen him on TV quite a bit in these movies. But Pat, aside from Star Wars, had you seen him in other stuff growing up at all? I know you Not- said you didn't watch too many of the Hammer films. Not that I can recall. I mean, maybe I did. You know, maybe, you know, something was on and, you know, maybe my parents were watching or maybe I was flipping through channels and I caught bits and pieces of something that I thought might have been interesting. But, you know, flipping channels back then was much more of an arduous task, you know, getting up, walking across the room, right? fiddling with the rabbit ears, you know, like, <laughs> oh, let me turn it to UHF. Oh, let me turn it, you know. Oh, what, what's on? What's on Fox Twenty Five? Nothing. What's on WLVI Fifty Six? Like you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I don't like this show. Let me go back. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, much more arduous. So it, I tended to find something that I thought might be interesting and stick with it. So I don't recall if I've seen him in anything else, but it wouldn't surprise me if I did because I was always partially watching something. Yeah. Well, there you go. Right on. There you go. And he's just so awesome in this. Um, again, though, I felt like he he wasn't given enough to do. Especially in the fight sequences. I mean, towards the end, he starts to fight more, but I would have liked... I mean, maybe because he was getting up there in age. He wasn't that old in 74, I don't think. You know, I, I think it would have been nice to see him engage more in the combat, but maybe it was something to do with the stunt work or choreography or something. Yeah, I don't... I, I was kind of surprised by that because I was expecting him to take much more of a uh, an active role when it came to, you know, fighting. So he was uh, 64, or 61 in 1974. Okay. So, I mean... You, you can, if you watch the Hammer films, in particular the Dracula films, where he plays various Van Helsings um, over the years, you can see a slow decline toward the end of the Dracula run of his physicalness. Like in the first Dracula film with Lee, he is running around, he's leaping off tables, he's doing all sorts of crazy stunts and all that. You get towards the end of the Dracula films, and you get this, where he's a little bit more uh, subdued. And I don't know if it was an age thing. I'm not really sure what was going on there. Um, it would have been nice to see him get a little bit more you know, rough and tumble Cushing, you know. But I also get it. This right. wasn't really a movie about let's watch Peter Cushing fight. Let's let's watch the seven brothers and their sister, you know. <laughs> so Right. <laughs> I get it. He was a little... Uh... He was like, oh, well, you know, I've done some fighting and some stuff like this, but it's just like, you know, kind of wacky, like you said, jumping off tables and, you know, things like that, as opposed to seeing, you know, a couple dozen like real martial artists, like, yeah. you know, masters. And it's like, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and wave this torch around. <laughs> uh, yeah. But well, I also look at it as, you know, 61, being 61 years old in 1974 is not the same as, say, being in your 70s now. I mean, look at Stallone and Schwarzenegger still going strong. Right, and, right. You know, like, those guys look like, you know, they're in, like, way better shape, like, than I've ever been at, you know, <laughs> in their 70s, yeah. like, I still mean, doing action films. Samuel Jackson is 72. Mm -hmm. Is he really? Oh I mean, come on. You know, also, it might have been a choice. It might have been an, an intentional choice because this is the third Van Helsing that he's played uh, in the Dracula films, and it might have been a right. choice to, to play him a little more with, you know, withdrawn and reserved as opposed he's to... He's more uh, of an academic. Yeah, that might have been a decision to kind of differentiate him from the other Van Helsings we'd seen. I, I don't know. Right, except he, he does mention that he's clashed with vampires in the past, but... Um, again, who knows when that happened in his timeline, in his lifetime. So that that's a question, actually, that I was going to ask is now... Now, um, Pat, I know you haven't seen the Hammer films, but in, in um, Satanic Rites of Dracula and Dracula AD 72, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Derek, but um, he plays the great-grandson of Van Helsing, right? I think so. So then would he be, then, the grandson here? You know, I don't know if they... I don't know if anything's or, ever been officially said. I don't know if there's anything canon-wise or anything like that. I can, like, see if there's a timeline structure of some sort. Yeah. But, I mean, there's definitely, you know, to kind of um, touch on what you were saying, and now I just totally lost my train of thought. Shit. Um, 
grandson, grandfather. No, it was prior to that. You you had said something, and I was gonna make a point on that. Now I don't remember what it is, but I think it was something about. Oh yeah, all right about combat. Um, you know, like yeah, he's tangled with vampires before, and it's like, yeah, like maybe he tangled with them. You know, at like three o'clock in the afternoon while they're asleep in their coffin, like <laughs> doesn't take a lot. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I totally, uh, you know, I. I punch the shit out of that great white shark in the Walmart parking lot. Like, oh, (laughs) those dolphins aren't too smart on the beach. You know, like, you know, it all depends on what the location and what the situation is. You know, it's, if I'm going to fight a vampire, you know, or, oh, I went to the werewolf's house with, uh, you know, uh, all my silver bullets, you know, during a new moon and it was, you know, 1130 a.m. He was just sitting down getting ready to make lunch and i shot him in the face six times like <laughs> technically yeah i killed a werewolf or it's right. like yeah did you know that i once knocked out muhammad ali it was in 1998 but i still did it <laughs> you know, it all depends on when like what the situation is like oh, i've tangled with vampires before maybe he hired somebody to tangle with them right yeah right and that the, the timeline of Professor Van Helsing is something that would have to be investigated because it would take up too much time here. But, you know, the more I think about, like, the original Dracula films, those had to be in the late 1700s, 1800s, somewhere around this. And this was 1804, so, or a year later, right? Wasn't it a year later that um, the plot picked up with Cushing? Yeah, you know, I'm, and I'm doing some checking here, and I, I obviously this is a fan wiki, but this fan wiki online suggests that this van this Van Helsing is the same Van Helsing from the first two Dracula films, which I don't okay. I don't buy that though. That, there's no way that that doesn't make sense, does it? Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out because uh, if this movie takes place in uh, what was it 1804? They said it was was it a hundred years later from the beginning or a year later? I would have to go back and look again. Yeah, I'd have to double track. I should have written that down. But <laughs> Transylvania in 1804, yeah. No, a century later, according to the Wikipedia page. Right, so. okay, so this would be 1904. So he definitely would not be the Van Helsing from the first two movies. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. You know, if this was 1804, then that I could buy. Because they don't really tell you in those original films. You have to kind of guess what year they are yeah, based on true. the styles and stuff. So so then he would probably be the grandfather of the Van Helsing from the early 70s. If this was 1904 and he's 61, say, yeah, he's he's the grandfather of the guy from the 70s films. And, of course, every kid looks just like him. So Of course. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have very strong genes in the Van Helsing line. Right. Well, it's, it's all in those cheekbones. You know, it's, it's, right. It's, it's all... <laughs> So, all right, so let's move on with our cast here. We've got John Forbes Robertson. I, I always want to call him John Robert Forbes. I don't know why. Um, he played Count Dracula. He was in the movie Life Force, and he was also in the Hammer modern-day film called Venom with Oliver Reed, which I remember enjoying that movie. That's uh, It's basically like Die Hard with a snake. Um, with well, there's snake. your Venom connection. There you go. There's your Venom connection, right? Oh, there you go. No. The Ven- no. Right. I didn't even think of that. I don't know. <laughs> and he was in Vault of Horror. Yeah, he's one of the Venoms. He's the lost Venom. <laughs> um, you know, he was an okay Dracula. I mean, there could have been worse, I suppose. He's no Christopher Lee. But he didn't have enough time to make an impression, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And the makeup didn't do any favors for him either. No, no I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, this 
Like, what is he, Dracula the whore? Like, what kind? How much foundation does this guy need? Right. <laughs> it's uh, some heavy SPF. Uh, <laughs> right. Know? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, he didn't man. even have a like a like he's like oh I have a trip in this castle like he didn't even have that like Romanian like stereotypical <laughs> Dracula accent. He's like yes I'm quite British. Yeah. How dare you interrupt <laughs> afternoon tea? <laughs> like that's not I, scary. I did like it the moment though where it dawned on him because he, he he basically mentions like you know why would you want to stay in this wretched place and then he looks around he's like ooh wretched. You know, and he's like kind of realized, yeah, this does suck. What the fuck am I doing here? Oh yeah, this place is a dump. This is like the worst castle ever. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna totally uh, take over your body so I can leave. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. Give me the. I'm body. out. Which would explain how you'd be able to walk around in the sun, but they don't. We don't really know how he's able to take over someone's body. But hey, it's fiction. So yeah, maybe he um, turned into mist and just like you know went into the guy's lungs. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, it's as realistic as anything else that happened in that movie. That's true, yeah. You know, and there was one thing I wanted to say. When he does that whole Nosferatu thing where his body just stands upright without bending his knees, mm-hmm. um, which was cool, they also do this thing that I used to hate in movies, and I've come to really appreciate it, where he's... at. I don't know if he's attached to the camera, but him and the camera are moving at the same pace. And you get the impression that he's just floated up in the air and now he's floating forward. And they did that with Lon Chaney Jr. in Son of Dracula. And as a kid, I I guess I just didn't understand it. So I hated that effect. I always hated that. But nowadays I've kind of grown to appreciate it. And I liked what it's telling you without having to try and do a phony effect that would look horrible. You get the idea he just floated up and he floated across the room and i think on that level for a low budget 1974 film that works i mean what do you guys think i mean i've seen worse effects in in movies like this you know i'll give you it is kind of a cheat (laughs) (laughs) i dug it yeah way yeah i mean again you know it's it's creative you know you have to remember that you know you if you're operating within budgetary constraints or you know time constraints or technology constraints you know you have to really you know, create the shots that you're looking for and be as creative as possible you know i've had the opportunity to work behind the scenes on a couple of different couple of different shoots for for movies and getting to see it's like okay this is how we're going to do this shot and like seeing how it's done um you know, like there was one shot where somebody was supposed to be like zooming through, you know, space and time. And basically it was literally me pulling them on like a little wheel, like, I don't know, like this four wheeled thing that you would use to kind of like transport stuff back and forth. But he was sitting on it and I was pulling it slowly backwards and we're going to play the footage forward. <laughs> so it's like, like a dolly of some kind. Yeah. You know, almost like the uh, like little thing that you would lay on to get underneath of a car. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And but like when you see the the shot on the other end of it, it's like, wow, that looks incredible. But it's like, yeah, I know, I killed my back and my knees like pulling him backwards at a specific <laughs> speed in order to do this. It better look good. But it looked right. It looked cool, and it ended up, uh, you know, like it's it's kind of a cheat, but at the same time, it's 
you know, you have to work with what you have because this was not like a multi-million dollar, you know, Disney project or something. This wasn't a Marvel movie. Right, right. Makes you wonder, though, would the Shaws have been like, well, we could put them on wires. We do it all the time. And they were like, no, 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 we'll just do it this way. (laughs) All right. No, we'll just make them jump for real. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I did like, too, like him transforming into the guy, that whole scene with the fog and... This, them rotating around that was really cool that that was i found found scary as a kid right on yeah that's fair i mean as a kid yeah i could see how it would be uh i would say like more unsettling or off-putting than scary at least yeah. for me yeah there was something interesting about that but then um so there was one credit i thought was interesting david de Kieser or kaiser who was credited as the voice of count dracula so I don't know if he completely dubbed John Forbes Robertson or if that was just when they did the voiceovers when you were hearing it in Ka's head. So, uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, this is something that Hammer did with a lot of their, their women. They would... Have David DeKeyser dub their voice? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. No, they would... They would I'm, I was trying to think of a delicate way to put this. Um, a lot of times with the Hammer women... They weren't necessarily cast because they were the best actress. If you look at some of their other vampire films, like Twins of Evil, for example, they were hired for their twins. You know what I'm saying? So, right, right. Uh, <laughs> and 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 while they do a good job, they did redub their voices. Uh, Ingrid Pitt's voice was redubbed for a few things. So, I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that Hammer would do for a lot of their women actresses or women performers. Uh, but I don't know why the decision was made to redub or dub Robertson's or Forbes Robertson's voice. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. We'll have to look him up at some point if we encounter him again. And let's see, we've also got... Uh, oh, one guy I liked in this movie was uh, Robin Stewart, who played uh, Leland Van Helsing, or Leyland as it's spelt. Um, he's got like 42 credits, mostly British stuff that we haven't seen. But I like the fact that his character wasn't portrayed as this, you know, foppish... Um, prissy kind of British upper crust. He was, if there was danger, he was running into it. He was running straight towards it, like especially like in the opening sequence when they they first get attacked, him and uh, Vanessa on the streets of uh, uh, King. That he doesn't run. He does, you know, he doesn't just stand there clutching her. He starts to go and help the Chinese guys fight. You know. Yes. Yeah, he seemed to be more the man of action, the, the, the Van Helsing of action of the two. He had a, a fun fighting stance, too, just like standing there with both his hands out. It's like, all right, what are you, what are you doing there? <laughs> Definitely not martial arts. Definitely not martial arts. Don't know what art that is. Yeah. Playing an invisible drum. <laughs> Me and my bongos of death will take care of you. Yeah. <laughs> So then we had uh, uh, Julie Edge. Is it Edge or Eggy? It's spelled E-G-E. You know, that's... Edge? Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't e- know what her nationality is. Uh, Norwegian, I believe. Oh, okay. Ega? I don't know. Ega. Anyways, the only other thing I could find that I recognized that she was in was on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Well, in that which... one episode of Penthouse, right? Oh, yes. That's right. No. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, know she was in the the one of the best Bond films. If if Connery had been alive, oh, I'm sorry. If Connery, if Connery had done on Her Majesty's Secret Service, that would have been his best film for sure. So good. Yeah. Um, she also appeared in Creatures: The World Forgot for Hammer as well, which is one of the uh, Lost World um, kind of sorta movies. Oh yeah. Okay. 
It's it's good. Uh, not a lot of dialogue in that one, but it's a good one. Right, right. I remember that one now. Then we've got Chan Shen who played Ka. I don't know what kind of car he is. It could be a Toyota or a, you know, a Dodge. Or, oh, I'm sorry, Ka, not Car. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's my my New England accent kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just take the car. He was. We've seen him before, Pat. He was in Flag of Iron. And he was also in Shaolin Daredevils, which we both, we've both we covered both of those. And he's coming up in one that we are going to cover uh, soon called Sword Stained with Royal Blood. Ooh. You have noticed these uh, a lot of these movies have very long titles. And there's, right. there's one that I will be uh, mentioning when we cover the next, uh, the, other, the other film that we paired up today. Just wait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And the last one I wanted to mention was um, Lao Kar Wing, who played C. Quay. She was the sister. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I misread that. Um, she, Sue played Mai Quay. She was the sister. And um, it was nice to see a female Shaw actor in this. We don't, so far, we haven't gotten a lot. I know there are some movies that do heavily feature the female warriors. Um, but up to this point, we have, we've only encountered a couple of them. And even then they didn't have much screen time in the films that we did. So it was nice to see, you know, this chick right up there with her bros trying to take down the vampires, you know? Yeah. She was way more useful than Van Helsing was. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's so true. So yeah, as we mentioned, they they had a couple of different titles, the seven brothers meet Dracula uh, and the seven brothers and their one sister meet Dracula, which I think that's the only trailer you can find. I mean, I actually didn't look for them, but I remember in years past looking for a trailer, and it was always, the seven brothers and their one sister meet the seven sisters for seven brides, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's, I love the titles for these, man. I just, I love the titles for these. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so those, the minions now, the zombies, I'm sorry, the vampires had their minions come out of the grave. Would you guys say those were zombies? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, they definitely did zombie stuff and acted like zombies. Right. They weren't necessarily Romero-style zombies, though. They were more like the Hammer from from that zombie movie Hammer did, Derek? Uh, yeah, Plague of the Zombies. Plague of the Zombies. Arguably, pretty much one of the uh, only, other than this, the only time they did zombies. Um, came out, it had the misfortune of coming out right before Night of the Living Dead. Oh, uh, yeah. So it kind of, if I, I'm still convinced that if Night of the Living Dead hadn't come out and been as popular as it was, Hammer would have done more zombie movies in that vein. Because I, I love the Romero stuff, but I also love the more spooky and kind of more, you know, supernatural styles of zombie stuff. And yeah, Play of the Zombies is fantastic. And, and yeah, these are zombies, man. Sure. Yeah, you know, Pat, I think um, I think we're all going to have to start up a new Hammer podcast because you've got to see these movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'll, I'll definitely... Uh you know, start watching them. I mean, it's the same thing with the, uh, you know, the Shaw brothers and all these, uh, Westerns, you know, like I hadn't really seen any of them prior to, uh, us doing the show. And I don't watch trailers. I just go into it completely blind and see what happens. Yeah. Actually too, um, Chris Esper and I have been doing a series off and on, on, uh, then is now where we're trying to help people introduce somebody else to horror movies. And we started with the universal horrors. And once we're done with those, we're going to get into the hammer films. So I'll put the word out with you guys. If you guys want to show up on, you know, one or two or more of those, those episodes that we do. 
Um, it's a, it's it's a, a, the podcast should be called Stop Hammer Time. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it's like Dracula avoiding Van Helsing, and it's like, can't touch this. Boom, wearing, boom, boom. wearing parachute pants. <laughs> I think I just heard Christopher Lee rolling in his grave. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Oh man, oh, yeah. He's like, at but, least in my day, we did heavy metal music. Yeah. So, but but you've given me an idea for a Photoshop project. So awesome. Oh, um, there you go. <laughs> Christopher Lee on MC Hammer. Oh, there yeah. you go. There you go. <laughs> Van Helsing with a stake in one hand and a boombox in the other. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I could definitely see that. That's something that Christopher Lee would do. Yeah. <laughs> Tor- towards the end, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. One of the things I loved about this movie too, that in the directing was that whenever the good guys would, would um, they'd get together and form a cool stance as they waited for the bad guys to show up, and the camera would do this nice sweeping pan around them. I just loved the shots like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, just like a real fight. It's like, all right, guys, let's stand around and look awesome while we're waiting for our enemies to attack us one at a time. <laughs> Sweet. Hey. You know, I know we're uh, we're enemies here, and we're 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 trying to kill each other, and and you know, but uh, you know, thanks for at least letting us have our our our, our sweet aesthetic. Oh yeah, Christ. <laughs> oh yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting that Si Ching uh, didn't have any weapons. He was the leader, and he used his bare hands. Yeah, that was definitely different. Definitely not something you see all that often in a. Uh, martial arts film unless that's like the the gimmick it's like oh i don't use weapons i only use my hands you know like that uh there was one we just watched the other day that was or i say the other day but it was probably like a month ago that was like that where it was like it's like oh you guys don't use weapons you know why are you running around with that sword you don't use swords liar yeah (laughs) yeah and he hey it worked it served him well because he was able to just reach in and rip the hearts out of the zombies and and the and the vampires and stuff, so that was cool. Yeah, it's like, ha, got your heart. <laughs> Happy <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> wow. Instead of got your nose, he's playing got your heart with the zombies. Wow. Uh, were you guys keeping track, like, when, when the, the fight scenes finally kicked in, I was keeping track of whether or not a, a vampire was killed or whether or not one of the good guys was killed, and it really wasn't until like three quarters in that the good guys really started to lose in heavy numbers. Were you guys keeping track of that? I mean, I probably should have, but no. <laughs> it could just be me and my OCD. <laughs> but I mean, that's usually the way it goes. It's like, all right, you know, this is when, you know, we've been doing this for a while. Time for, uh, you know, especially after the guy's like, oh, I don't know if my brothers and I could survive another battle. You know, it's right. like, that's what I was talking about earlier. It's like, <laughs> okay. So all of a sudden, you know, you started off this whole thing by like, oh, we would die for you. And then like, then it comes to the time. It's like, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think we could, I don't think we could survive another battle with these vampires. And it's like, yeah, but you already took out like eight of them. It's like, yeah, I know, but uh, I'm not really well, feeling it anymore. So, and when he said that, he's like, oh, we're not going to be able to survive another fight. I'm, and I'm thinking, of course, in role playing terms, I'm like, well, they could probably have a short rest overnight and get back at least, you know, 1d6 hit points, and then they'll be fine. Yeah, I was like, you just said, like, this is like your whole mission was to, like, die for him. And, like, now all of a sudden you don't want to do it. 
It's like, what are you? I thought we were going to die, die. I mean. <laughs> what are you, chicken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh man. But, Derek, you know, you're a seasoned game, game uh, role-playing player. Didn't you feel that a lot of these fights were right out of, you know, D&D or Call of Cthulhu? Oh, like? yeah. It's, it's a quest, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the party. It's a quest. And, and, you know, he puts the party together. Um, you know, we, get, we assemble the party without having to meet in a tavern somewhere. And we go on, right. <laughs> on, on a quest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some, some PCs fall along the way. But, you know, that... that kind of happens yeah, that's the way it goes yeah yeah you know yeah it definitely oh, yeah. feels like it could be an old game or an old school gaming module for sure oh yeah big time and it was funny because the course you know like we were talking about the the one guy that didn't have weapons but then the others each had a unique weapon you know one guy had the two axes uh one was the archer then you got the two twins that are holding hands while they're sword fighting and i'm just thinking how impractical that is in a combat situation I'm like, just let go so you can get the guy, you're going to get your arms chopped off. Yeah, that, that felt like, um, you know, to continue the role-playing game analogy, so this is a party full of monks, and they had like a very specific, you know, feat or skill that they had to be holding hands to do their thing. And it just makes no sense in the real world, but at the gaming table, you just kind of shrug and go, okay. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I suppose if that was, we gave them some extra advantage, then it would make sense. But, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't right. make a lot of sense. Yeah. It's like, sure, that may as well happen. All right. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we're talking about a movie with you know vampires and zombies and Dracula. It's like <laughs> they hold hands. That's not realistic. You know. <laughs> we're talking real life here, man. Fighting against vampires. These guys wouldn't do that. That's so unnatural. <laughs> The, uh, and talk about realism. There was one point where one of the vampires was was melting, and it looked like he instead of eyes, he had fried eggs on his face. I mean, that like, might have been what they used. Yeah. Some nice, <laughs> some nice runny eggs. With, <laughs> Delicious with like pepper, pepper all over them, so they look gray. Yeah, who did the special effects on this? Um, that I don't know. Hold on. Because I feel like that may have been where this film struggles a lot was with the the special effects, um, which it's hard to say because I love what Hammer normally does. Um, Les Bowie, really did the special effects? Yeah, he did. Oh, he did Superman. Wow, and yeah, Les Les Bowie's usually pretty on point. Casino Royale, Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Yeah. So to, oh, Vampire Circus, that's one of my uh, favorite Hammer films. Yeah. It also wow. could have been what supplies they were able to get access to over there. I, I don't know. I'm, it's, it, that's a reach. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed kind of lazy, that the, the vampire makeup effects. I'm not sure what their rationale was about it. Yeah. But I did like that, you know, when Van Helsing explains that the crucifix works in Europe against vampires, but in China it's the image of the Buddha. Yeah, yeah I had an issue with that. Really? Yeah, mainly because like you're going up against Dracula, and Dracula's the one making all the vampires. So if that's the case, shouldn't they all have the same weakness as Dracula? If they're getting their power from him, shouldn't it be the same weakness? Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, because they also brought up like, oh, what about fire? No, fire. No, you can't use fire, and they kill like six of them with fire. Right. You know. I hear what you're saying, but what I also what I like though is that it did bring another element to the quote unquote vampire mythos that Hammer had been building 
over the years. The, uh, there's another film, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, that's just another phenomenal film from oh, Hammer yeah. that's criminally underrated. And yeah. there's a whole sequence in that film where they've got a vampire strapped to a chair and they're trying all these different methods to kill him. <laughs> and it, it could be done, it could become, uh, excuse me, it could come off laughable if it was done by any other studio. It's like, well, that stake didn't work and this fire didn't work and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's played pretty straight and I, I do appreciate that the Hammer mythology has been kind of expanded to that there are different ways to dispatch different types of vampires. I don't know if using the Buddha is really analogous to using a cross because you know Buddhism isn't quite a religion the same way Christianity is, and so that that doesn't seem to jive well for me. But yeah, well, yeah, and according to you know just regular mythology, the reason the crucifix supposedly was effective against vampires was because it represented the blood of Jesus. So right. his blood would have been supernatural and poisonous to them. So, and, and this has been expanded upon in other vampire stories as well. Um, is it the fearless vampire killers where they have to use the star of David because the vampire was Jewish in life? Yes. <laughs> um, well, and I can't remember what story it was, but there's a story out there where it's a bunch of yuppies in the eighties that got turned into vampires. So their weakness is money. So, because <laughs> oh, that's, that's what funny. they believed in. So, which again, laughable, but... That's hilarious. Well, like in yeah. Love at First Bite, where Van Helsing keeps trying to kill Dracula and he comes up with the Star of David and he's like, why don't you go find yourself a nice Jewish girl, you know? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I I, mean, if I can see if it's like... See, I... I uh, <laughs> it's it's hard to to wrap my head around this because on the one hand, you have like, like, all right, this is what's been established, and you know, obviously, like the European thing, you know, with with uh, with Dracula, and it's like, oh, the the crucifix will stop anything that we think is remotely evil, and it's like, oh, you were Jewish? Here, let me show you the symbol of your fate. That'd be like killing Dracula with like a gallon of blood. It's like, dude, that doesn't make sense. Like that's, yeah. Yeah, they didn't really... I mean, if you want to kill a Nazi vampire with a Star of David, that might work. Oh, there you go. Like, that would make more sense, because it's the antithesis of what you're... It'd be like, oh, we're going to kill this fat vampire with some cheesecake. <laughs> like, it doesn't work. Oh, that would make a great movie, though, Nazi vampires, and the good guys have to use Star of David instead of crosses. They, they find out the hard way. Oh, I'm sure it's been made. Yeah, like there's, it's probably somewhere. I'm sure, it's, I'm sure that's a thing. <laughs> Have you seen the new one, by the way? Some guy on on uh, I don't know one of the Facebook groups posted, uh, "Hey, I'm I'm crowdfunding my new movie. It's Amityville, the it's the Amityville Shark, <laughs> and the poster is a shark coming out of the Amityville house." Okay, so I've seen just kind of on a tangent, like there was like this, like. Amityville movie that came out and they had a shark on the uh, on the um, movie poster. Yeah, the shark was in the movie for about, I don't know, 12 seconds. So it's like <laughs> they just put the shark on there to get your attention and it worked because, you know, it's like, oh, shark movie, I'll watch this. And then it's like, yep, yeah, it's been in the movie for like 12 seconds. <laughs> and it was absolutely terrible, that movie. That's hilarious. Oh my God! When I used to run the movie theater back in 2016, not to get too far off off topic, but 
Um, I had a, a deal with this guy who made a movie called The Sharksercist, and we were going to play it there, but we ended up having to close. But that would have been interesting. It's like this, you know, exorcist that fights against possessed sharks or something. <laughs> there is one called The Shark Exorcist. Yeah, there that's is. what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. I haven't seen that one yet. A demonic nun <laughs> unleashes holy hell when she summons the devil to possess a great white shark. <laughs> wow. So much fun. Holy hell, Batman. That, uh, yeah, that's, that's a movie. <laughs> of all the movies I've seen so far, that is certainly one of them. Right. All right, so, Derek, do you have anything else to <laughs> add about uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires? Well, clearly, I think we've already gotten there. It needed a shark. No, it didn't. Oh, yes. <laughs> ah. No, it did not need a shark. Golden Sharks. <laughs> oh, man. Agree uh, to disagree. I, I, lo- <laughs> I love this movie. Um, I Yeah, it's got some issues, and it's as good as some of the other Hammer Dracula films now. But I love it nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. And would you recommend this to yeah. Um, oh, yeah. people? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There is a. Uh, I love the music, and there's a soundtrack release where Peter Cushing is actually doing like a. I can't remember how long it goes on for, but he does it like a storybook. He reads a story, like a storybook of this film, uh, and it's just great. Oh, yeah. It's so cool. Just Cushing's voice, you know. Oh yeah, and but before we get into your thoughts, P, um, PJ, I wanted to um, mention that I thought, especially you had mentioned the Monster Squad, and at the very beginning, the music reminded me of that whole opening sequence from Monster Squad. Just the way it was, uh, the way it was composed. Did, did that strike a bell with you? Yeah, the music definitely sounded familiar, and I was like, this keeps playing the same. Like this is from something. Like, but I couldn't quite place it. But, like, they kept playing it over and over and over. It's like, all right, I get it. You scored the movie. Like, like that flutish kind of music that, that sounds like bats flying almost, you know? A little you, bit, yeah. You know, some of the music did end up getting looped kind of weirdly when they did the various cuts. So I wonder if maybe that's what you were picking up on. And the weird music that they put in at, like, the fight scene. Like, what yeah. the hell was that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this on the show last week about how if you score a, a a fight scene or you score a scene a certain way, like it can really undercut whatever you're trying to get across. Oh yeah, yeah. it's like oh we're going out for ice cream and we're having a good time. We're so excited. Why are they playing Everybody Hurts by REM? Like, wait a minute. <laughs> or oh d- yeah, I'm on a, occasion I'm... it can be it can be you know used you know, in a specific way, like, you know, the singing in the rain scene from A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a film score collector. I love my movie music. I love film scores, television scores, video game scores, all of it. Uh, And and I listen to it almost nonstop when I'm not listening to, like, nerdcore or whatever, right? Uh, And it's just, I I love that stuff. Um, And it can have such an impact and influence on a scene. I've got a long a video in the works for my gaming YouTube channel called Dice Monster Dice. And this video is going to be all about using music in tabletop role-playing game segment sessions, which, you know, a lot of people do. But what I've done is I've taken a scene from the second Lord of the Rings film, stripped out that music, and put in the theme song from Conan the Barbarian. And it totally changes the vibe mm. of the scene. Completely. So, yeah, if your film scoring isn't on point, you're going to 
you're not going to get the point you're trying to make. You're not going to get the point across you're trying to make. So, right, yeah. right. Yeah, I heard a podcast recently with Michael Giacchino, who's yeah, yeah. a famous film composer. Yeah, and um, he was on with, of course, I can't think of, oh, I think it's Brad Bird, the guy that directed The Incredibles and um, yeah, yeah. Ratatouille. And Brad Bird was saying that same thing. He was like, you know, a, a music could make or break a film. And, you know, they usually don't hire the guy, the music guy, until towards the end of the production. And he said that to Giacchino, who I think The Incredibles was his first theatrical film. He had been doing TV like Alias and stuff. Sure. And uh, but this was in Lost. But this was going to be his first movie. And the Brad Bird said to him, "You better not fuck up my movie because <laughs> the music could either make or break this film." Sure. And uh, it, it ended up working. I mean, that's a great soundtrack. I love listening to that on I Spotify. Mean, not to go too far off the beaten path, but I mean, Peter Cushing's in the movie, so maybe that counts. Uh, <laughs> one of my issues with the Star Wars special edition and the other two films as well, but especially Star Wars is when Lucas went in and kind of re-edited the dogfight sequence at the end with the trench run and the dust star and all that. Yeah. Mm. The music itself didn't get changed all that much. Well, the music was composed back in 77 for that particular scene with the different editing and the pacing and all that. And when Lucas added all the CG stuff, he changed the editing, he changed the pacing, and the music doesn't line up nearly as well anymore. And oh, it, it's yeah. it, it, it's it's subtle, and you know a film score geek like me is going to pick up on it, and like special edition, no, and you know shake my fist at it. But um, yeah, I mean it's such an integral part when it's being used. You know, sometimes silence is best, but you use a good film score, you got to use it just right. Right, exactly. So, Pat, your final thoughts on Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires that meet their sister and fight Dracula. Um. I think that if you are looking to get into Hammer films, this might not be the one to start with. Um, I mean, I think I think this was decent. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it. I missed, you know, uh, Christopher Lee being in this. I, I missed seeing, uh, you know, badass fighting uh, Peter Cushing. So... I think had I seen those before, I might have appreciated this uh, a little bit better. But I thought this was a perfectly serviceable movie. You know, it's uh, again, I think it would have been better with the with the Shaw brothers, but uh, that's that's me. You mean the Venoms? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, the Shaw brothers. Jesus, <laughs> yeah, the Shaw brothers, Rick and Scrim. Um, you know, getting having those guys in it, I think. I think they have a lot more personality yeah. than the actors we got to see. I mean, like, everybody just... I mean, like, the guy who played Van Helsing's son, all I could think of was that Kung Pao Enter the Fist uh, parody movie that came out, because <laughs> that's what he looked like. Yeah. And it kind of, like, it took me out of the film a little bit, mm. especially where he's like, ah, I'm going to fight and protect you. It's like, mm, are you, though? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like he's he's the guy who who shows up at the last second to put his name on the uh, on the gift. It's like, oh, what did <laughs> we get you for your anniversary? It's like, mm. it's like I signed your dad's name to the card too. Yeah, that way it's from both of us. Like that was his contribution. Um, but yeah, I I, I liked it, um, but I probably would have liked it more if I had some more background. So, you know, after, after seeing some more of the hammer films, I think I'll probably come back and revisit this. And then 
you know, see if my opinion changes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love this movie. I always loved it as a kid. And, you know, growing up, figuring out that it was actually Hammer and Shaw was a really cool discovery. I almost wonder if maybe, because Hammer does gothic horror the best, and by completely taking the story and setting it in China, you're kind of losing that British gothic element. And I wonder if there was some way they could have altered the story where, you know, obviously you get complaints at this, but maybe the first half takes place in England and then the fight carries on and they all got to travel to China for whatever reason to solve the second half of the movie, you know, and you'll get criticism that, well, it couldn't decide if it was a gothic horror or a kung fu movie, but, you know, or they could have, by the same token, set the whole thing in London and had Chinese martial arts warriors show up there to fight Dracula and his minions, you know, so who knows? Anything was possible. This is what we got, and I, I really love this movie. I find it very, I find it very thrilling. I watched it with my grandson, and, um, you know, when he wasn't playing with his toys, and he was, he was like, enjoying the, the, the fights. <laughs> So, so yeah, I would recommend this to people to watch on on two levels for for the martial arts in it uh, and for the horror aspect. Right on. Hey. So we are going to take a break, and when we return, we are going to discuss Requiem for a Gringo from 1968. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On the Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't, yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of 
Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history, from the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So we are also discussing today 1968's Requiem for a Gringo. Uh, in Italian, Requiem para un Gringo, or in Spanish, Requiem para el Gringo, also known as Duel in the Eclipse, which uh, makes sense now that I've seen the movie. 
Um, especially the ending there. Uh, this is a 1968, as I said, Italian-Spanish spaghetti western uh, directed by Eugenio Martin and Jose Luis Marino and starring Lang Jeffries, old friend Fernando Sancho, and Femi ben Benussi. Uh, it is most known for the gore and psychedelic elements, and uh, it is the only western film of the Euro spy and peplum film genre uh, star... Uh, the only Western film of the Eurospy and Peplum film genre star, Lang Jeffries. Uh, the film is partially based on Masaki Kobayashi's film, Harakiri. This, uh, this is a weird one. First, I just want to, uh, because I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, for, uh, Fernando Pancho, uh, no, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Fernando <laughs> Sancho. We have encountered him um, multiple times, uh, especially in um, in uh, the because uh, he's been in a million things, the uh, Ringo films. So he's definitely branching out uh, from Ringo to Gringo. But he was also in a film that uh, I had mentioned uh, I wanted to talk about, not just not talk about, but mention the name of because we were talking about how the some of the uh, martial arts films we've seen have very long names and he was in a movie called Robin Hood Arrows Beans and Karate which <laughs> just seems like the most insane um, like just the most insane collection of words that is supposed to like describe this film um, I mean, I guess, but I don't know. So anyways, let's, uh, let's get into the, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a phenomenal name for a movie. It's like, I just want to see it because that's what it's called. Robin Hood, right. arrows, beans, and karate. And All it, it needs is Terrence Hill. It, it looks like it's a Western. Yeah. Like I, he did a lot of Spanish, uh, Westerns. It seems yeah. Spanish and Italian, but I mean, None of those things, I mean, Robin Hood and Arrows, absolutely, those things go together. Robin Hood and Beans, I, maybe? <laughs> beans and Karate? I don't know about that. Well, they have a Japanese cook, according to the synopsis in the film, so well, there's be, your karate, yeah, right? Yeah, you're going to be running around kicking people, farting everywhere? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is awesome, though. i got to see this movie. Yeah, because yeah, I was like, I know this guy was in something we watched, and I was looking through his, his filmography just to find out what it was. <laughs> Wasn't <And> this. <laughs> no, I was like, I haven't seen this one, but now that's my mission. Uh, so the, uh, the, the plot synopsis is uh, a remote hacienda is raided by a gang of Mexican bandits led by the infamous Porfirio Carranza, and the owner and his family are all killed. The young visitor is killed, too, and the peons who work the land are terrorized. I like how they use that word, because that's what they kept calling everybody, peons. But then the rumors start spreading about a mysterious jaguar man who is said to have magical powers. And he comes to the aid of Nina, a peasant girl who is constantly harassed by one of the gang members. Harassed is one word. Sexually assaulted is another. Um, <laughs> and he tells her about a special date, April 17th. 
When the day has come, the Jaguar man arrives at the Hacienda where Carranza is now residing and asks him for a duel with one of his three most dangerous henchmen. The three men have been missing for days, and it turns out they were all killed by the Jaguar man. Seems like something he would already know of when he's asking for a duel. When Carranza orders his men to shoot him, the Jaguar man points at the sky, and the sun is eclipsed by the moon. So the premise of this movie may be a rather basic revenge story about a man avenging the violent death of his younger brother, but Requiem para el Gringo is one of the most enigmatic spaghetti-slash-paella westerns. I did not know what it was going to be in Spanish. Uh, I have ever seen, according to uh, the uh, Spaghetti Western database. Yeah, this was... This was uh this was interesting. I really think that the uh, the uh, Lang Jeffries character of uh, Jaguar Man was. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. He was. He was weird. I think the word you're looking for is <laughs> awesome. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm so used to these guys where you know, this yeah. was such a jarring departure from what we've seen with Giuliano Gemma and Terrence Hill over the past, you know, six, seven, eight episodes. Right. Like he's such a different character. That's like, is he a good guy? Is a bad guy? Like, like the random, like, Oh, I'm reading the paper, but I'm not really reading the paper. It's just covering my face. And it's like, let me see your face. Ha. I also have a kitten. Surprise. Like, <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> It's like why? Why do you? Why do you have a kitten? Um, yeah, I I'd never seen this before. Um, you know, as as is the case with most of the films that we watch. Actually, every single film that we watched, I had never seen before. Um, <laughs> this definitely follows the archetypal structure of a western. Mysterious guy comes into town, has some sort of you know, quirk or easily recognizable, you know, feature, you know, in this case, his Jaguar poncho, which <laughs> I've not seen in any other, um, you know, Western that I've watched, which, you know, it definitely stands out. So I give them credit for that, you know, and then, you know, like, oh, he's he's magic, which, again, uh, harkens back to the Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, quote, uh, because he clearly has an understanding of astrology uh, and or astronomy. Oh, maybe astrology, too. I know he doesn't really get into it. But, uh, you know, he understands the movement of planets and stars. And, you know, he has a, a pretty firm grasp on science. You know, he's there. He has his own mission. He's saving the, the, the damsel in distress. Well, one of them, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he definitely, you know, he's like, oh, well, let me help you. And, you know, I'll protect you and keep your innocence. But I am going to bang this whore. Because um, <laughs> he does have that other girl come up to his room. Right, right. And, you know, watching this, because I watched this before I watched The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. And I was like, oh, maybe they'll show nudity in this one. It's like, no, they didn't. It's like, yeah, that's, you know, unsurprising. Although we did see a lot of boobs in Seven Golden Vampires, which none of us right. brought up. Oh, yeah. But there were a lot of boobs in that. Uh, you know, mostly in the sacrificial chamber, which is, you know, you know, not, not really that sexy. 
It's like, haha, I'm sacrificing you and draining your blood. Oh, did you need to see my boobs too? <laughs> I mean, might as well. Well, they would you go know. through the town ripping but, the shirts uh, off the women. You know, it's like, what the what? Really? Why? I mean, because they're can jerks. Tell you why? <laughs> yeah. What's in seats? Yes. That's why. Right. That's true. Guess how many boobs I saw today? Fifteen. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, he he definitely hooked up with that that other that other whore. Like, you know, because they were all in uh, a small whorehouse. You know, it was literally a one whore town. Um, they kept smacking the girl around, and like that dude got like. The, when she's like trying to hide that she saw what was going on and she's like, oh, I'm taking a bath. And he's like, all right, I'm going to come in, in there and, you know, Finally. I'm going to I'm going to turn into Uncle Touchy here. Um, yeah. Like yeah, he was just groping the shit out of her. And it's like Uncle Touchy. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> it's okay. a Pat Oswalt thing. Uncle Touchy's right. naked puzzle basement. Wasn't really expecting that today. Okay. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um... no, I'm, I'm familiar with the bit. Just like, okay. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but yeah, he was very, uh, creepy and like when he wasn't groping her, he was slapping her. Um, well, you then know, he definitely. tells her, he's like, he's like, well, I'm not going to force myself on you, but if you don't come to my place tomorrow night, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. You know, totally like, I would never rape you. You'll give yourself to me willingly or I'll murder you. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't think that's how that works. No. But yeah, all the, the three main guys all have like very distinctive looks to them. You know, and then you got her boyfriend who's... Uh, not her boyfriend, but the uh, the blonde there, and she's she's running around with Fernando Sancho trying to get all the treasure and like every piece of treasure he gives her, she has to like do something for him. And she's like, "Oh, this is gross. I hate it." It's like, "Yeah, but just keep getting that treasure, baby. We'll be rich." And it's like <laughs> I am loaded with diamonds and pearls and gold. Like, how much more money do you need, you right. greedy bastard? And you know, because like, there's that one scene. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's that one scene where that's all she's wearing is, like, various jewels. Right. And then she yeah. puts on a, a non-Jaguar poncho. <laughs> and, and somehow that say, stuff though, is I'm worthless glad... in the West. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't get that. No, <laughs> yeah. no. Like, that doesn't... Yeah, that didn't make any... Oh, if we go to Boston, this will be worth a lot more. It's like... <laughs> Then why are you spending all this time like hoarding it and trying to like smuggle it across the the Mexican border into California? Like, what's the big deal? Right. Uh, I was gonna say I I am very glad that Fernando Sancho has uh, changed up his role, uh, you know, and isn't typecast, <laughs> you know, from all the other films we've seen where he's like this like slovenly leader of like some band of outlaws and he's just an absolute scumbag. Uh, yeah, I'm glad glad to see we're switching things up a little bit. Where well, he's, yeah, because uh, he was a complete scumbag in this, not an absolute scumbag. So. Right, right, and in and in the uh, the other Ringo movie, he was a total scumbag. So he's changing <laughs> things up. Um, you know, he's. Uh, <laughs> I used to work for a, a film distribution company years ago, and we had the rights. We, we owned the distribution rights to a number of films with Fernando Sancho. And we always talked about putting out a box set of his best westerns. The one thing that was holding us up is we really wanted to call it 
you know, Fernando Sancho, the best bastard of the Old West or something like that. And for whatever reason, certain parties found that to be a little offensive, so it never happened. Oh, geez. But damn, he's a good bastard. To me, he's a great bad guy. I love him. I mean, he definitely is. You know, it's like, you know, he comes walking onto set, you know, new director. Oh, which one are you? Uh, you know, slovenly bastard bad guy or handsome male lead? What do you think? <laughs> All right, your trailer's over there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just once, you know, if he could play a good guy, like that would just totally throw me off. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious to see that. He's done tons of movies, so there's got to be at least one where he's at least a mildly good guy. I bet you there's not. I've done 170 movies and I'm the same character in every one of them. I wonder what role he plays in uh, Robin Hood, Arrow, Beans, and Ferrati. I wonder what he plays there. It's probably Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Nope, he's a bad guy. Yeah, he's a bad guy in that one. Oh, that's funny. He's a a kidnapper and a killer in that one. Made Marion. Of course he is. Oh, and he tortures you with his beans. <laughs> He's yep. amazing, though. I mean, I, I know, yeah, typecast, but... Dude, he had a type and he played it to the hilt. I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Derek, when was the first time you saw this, and what was your first impression? Uh, I saw it a few years ago. Um, I It was working for that film company that I mentioned a little bit ago, where I really got into spaghetti westerns. I... I I knew what they were, but I didn't really crave them the way that I do now because I, I find them fascinating. Uh, I love them so much. Uh, and I kind of went on a tear, like I did with the Hammer films when I got my hands on those two VHS tapes. I went on a tear and just started watching everything that that film company had uh, on media that I could watch because a lot of it was stuff that you know I couldn't take home and watch at home or whatever. But uh, I, you know, I just went on a tear and just fell in love with the subgenre deeply and I, I dove di- deep into it um, this was not one that was owned by that company um, although I wonder if the Robin Hood one was because it was written by South um, yeah anyway <laughs> uh, this was not owned by that company I, I can't remember how this one came across my you know popped up on my radar but I saw the title and I thought okay whatever it's a western cool West spaghetti westerns have awesome names anyway and that see, it caught my attention but not too much then I read a, a synopsis somewhere, and the person who was doing the synopsis called him an astrologer, not an astronomer. And that caught my interest. It's like, oh, an astrologer in a spaghetti way. That sounds cool. So I tracked down the movie and watched it. I was a little disappointed that there was no astrologer in it, but I was thrilled by the whole thing. I loved the idea that he was timing his showdown with the bad guys to the eclipse, and he took that to his advantage, and he used that to his advantage, and I loved that. Uh, and I've gone back and I've watched this movie repeatedly since when I got it on Blu-ray. Um, the score, oh my God, the music. Spaghetti Western music is awesome anyway, but sometimes it starts to sound a little samey-samey. The score in this is standout stellar. And when you watch this movie, if you let yourself get caught up in it, man, it's like a gothic Spaghetti Western, and I adore it. Um, I just, it's one of my absolute favorites. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a really good one. And, you know, I hadn't heard of this before until I think it was I can't remember if it was either you or Rod Barnett mentioned it on like Facebook or something. And as soon as I. Um, I... If it was Rod, it's because I recommended it to him. Oh, okay. I remember he and I talked about it. He's like, I've never seen it. So I'm going to check it out. So Yeah, because yeah, I remember seeing the cover on on Facebook. So I went and ordered the Blu-ray. 
And um, actually, Derek, when you and I were first, you know, you did the second episode of East Meets the West with me, and you brought up the fact that we should cover this movie. And that was one of those things that we we're like, okay, when we get together again, we're gonna we're gonna cover it. And yeah, it's very different than the ones that we've covered so far. It's it's very mm-hmm. it's far more serious than most of the ones that we've covered, and it's very surreal, which I, I like that aspect about it. You can do a lot with spaghetti. I think when people. At the time, when I was told, like, I knew what spaghetti westerns were before I started working for this film company. Like, oh, it's the Clint Eastwood stuff, right? I had no idea how broad and how deep this subgenre is. You got the straight-up, you know, grimy, dirty spaghetti western revenge stories. You've got the lighthearted comedy stuff. You know, the Terrence Fisher stuff and all that. You've got the surreal stuff, like Cemetery Without Crosses. Right. Um You've got, and like I said, the titles are amazing. My favorite title of a spaghetti western is "God Made Them, I Kill Them." I mean, that's an amazing <laughs> title for a spaghetti western, yeah, or anything really. But uh, I mean, just it's such a fascinating subgenre with so much going on. And if you look at this movie, this one seemed to be more of a Spanish co-production on the Spanish side of the co-production. It was a Spanish-Italian co-production, and it seems more Spanish in its presentation and really it's put together as opposed to the, the more Italian-ish spaghetti westerns. Right. Um, Which is why they called it a paella western. There you go. Oh, no, is, okay. is paella the uh, the equivalent of uh, spaghetti? You know, when you said it was the first time I've heard it, but it makes sense to me. I have heard that <laughs> term before. I just forgot it. Uh, I can look that up at some point. But yeah, and Pat, what was the? Unfortunately, the scores haven't been released on CD, but I've got it on LP. There's an LP, and you can find it on oh, YouTube. Oh, that's cool! Yeah, it's just so good. And that so was good. done by a guy named Angelo Francesco Lavagnino. Lava, Lava, I'm sorry, Lavagnino. And um, you know, yeah, that stu- I'm glad stood you out for said me. It. <laughs> Lavagnino, and he, um, he did a lot of Eurospy he's films. He's done a lot like, of spaghetti westerns. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, mm-hmm. he did 217 movies, and the the, the Eurospy that I recognized was Super Seven Calling Cairo. Yes, which is another good one with Roger Brown, right? Yep, yep. And this one, this yeah. score, it there were shades of Lalo Schifrin in it, I thought. There were like little instruments that he used mm. that made me think of Lalo Schifrin. Yes. You know, did you find the same thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure, for sure. So that was good. And, of course, we mentioned Lang Jeffries, who played Ross. Um, Ross Logan, also known as Jaguar Man, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, he yeah. kind of, there were scenes Jaguar. where he, the mighty Jaguar, <laughs> there were scenes where he kind of reminded me of Michael and Sarah, just because he had that deep voice and just the way his face looked. I kept getting, uh, yeah. getting that. But he, he, one of the things, I think it was on IMDb, it lists him not only as, it's Ross Logan slash Django, which I thought was odd. <laughs> so, and, and did we talk about this? I don't know. The thing is, is that there's only been, a, like, maybe two official, quote-unquote, official Django films. Correct, yeah. But because that first Django film did so well, right? whenever something got picked up for distribution, especially, you know, on the, on the American side of things, if you could put the word Django into the title, they did it, whether it was a Django film or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, Django kind of be, what's the last count that I saw? There's over, like, 200 Django stories out there. Really? But really only... Two that were actually filmed as Django. Right. The two with Franco Nero, one in it's the nuts, 60s, man. the original, and then one in the 80s. Yeah. Yep. Um, there was rumors that there was going to be another one with him, but I don't know if that ever happened. What is that one with Jamie Foxx? 
Yeah, oh, that's, so yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I did hear, though, I did read recently that he is supposedly working on a final Django film for him, for him playing the character. I had heard that, too. Yeah. You know, it's funny, too, because the writer of this, um, someone named Maria del Carmen Martinez Roan, she wrote, um, she was involved in the writing of another film called Django Kill. If you live, shoot. <laughs> yep. Which is another good one. That one's also really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I was telling Pat recently, you know, when, when I was first doing the show, my son's like, oh, you must be out of movies by now. And I was like on episode six or seven. And I'm like, nah, dude, there's like, you know, 700 Shaw films and 600 Spaghetti Westerns. We'll be going forever. <laughs> I had that same issue when I started Monster Kid Radio. I thought I'm going to run out of movies. Yeah. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I, you know, again, on another tangent, unrelated, but I on the side, I try to do, like, to supplement um, the podcast as well as just for my own edification, I like to do research into these newspaper archives, and I just love looking at the old newspaper ads of movies when they came out. And there are so many years, yeah. first of all, when I go, wait a minute, I went to the movies every week this, this year, you know, that week. Why did I not see these films? But I'm constantly finding movies that I never heard of. And I, I feel like, oh, I've at least heard of or seen everything that's out there, and there's it's amazing how many films there are that I've never heard of and never saw. Yeah, I run into that too on the MKR side. Well, I will so. say that uh, you know I know we're talking about having a new, you know, potentially new Django film, and uh, Christoph Waltz was in Django Unchained, and apparently he is going to be starring with Willem Dafoe in a new western called Dead for a Dollar, uh, oh. directed by Walter Hill. Oh. That's a great title. Oh, wow, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. Oh, my. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, that, I, I saw that earlier today, and I was like, oh, I should probably bring this up, because uh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. like, just those two guys. Like, I don't care who else is in it. I don't care if Michael Sarah plays the bad guy. Um, right. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. But, yeah. Oof. Like, who's going to be the villain in that? Like, you know, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter because it sounds awesome. Like, yeah, they're both bad guys vying against each other. Like, you know, that's the thing about this spaghetti western. Sometimes though, is that there are no, you know, the lines between good guy and bad guy are is so blurred. So, yeah, there's a lot ah, of anti-heroes. That awesome. Like that's generally yeah. what it is. It's like, oh, we're rooting for this guy. He just shot like forty people in the face. Yeah, it's. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, have, have either of you seen the Django Kill? If you live, shoot. No, film? I no, have not. We haven't gotten to that one yet. It, it's almost as surreal as this one, <laughs> with like a character getting crucified and you know gold being turned into bullets, and it's just really kind of bizarre. And of course, it was come up with by the same person who came up with this one. <laughs> Um, but I would recommend it. That's too. awesome. It's not, it's not as good as this one, I think, but it's got a lot of almost horror-like elements to it. See, I think gold to being turned into a bullet would be like the worst metal to use. Yeah, I don't know why they did it. There's there's a reason why I'd have to go. Sorry, back we're, out, we're, we're, we're out of paintballs. What else do we have that's similar? I don't know. Do we have any gold we could make into into <laughs> bullets? Oh yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that's hilarious. So according to IMDb. The you know very reliable source mm-hmm. for movies, uh, Django Lives 
is coming up. Um, I won't read the synopsis, but um, it takes place in the early 1900s and as opposed to the late 1900s, Pat. Um, <laughs> yes. And it's directed by a guy named Christian Alvart, which I don't know. Uh, he did Pandorum, which I do recognize that. I think I may have seen that one. But other than that, I don't recognize other films. But it says John Sayles is the writer and Franco Nero is oh. the star. So that could be good, especially with John Sayles writing it. Pandorum was that right space on. movie so, with uh, Dennis know. Quaid when they were on the ship. That's right. And ben Foster. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 That was a good one. I remember enjoying that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's in pre-production. Under all, the, they're all attached to it. Uh, Django lives. So we'll see. Well, it's been about sixty <laughs> years. Do you think his hands are healed? I would hope so. You know, maybe he just went to the same doctor as Bud Spencer did in uh, that other one. Oh, Boot Hill. <laughs> yeah. I think it was Boot Hill. Yeah, gets shot in the head at the end of the movie. Next one, totally fine. Right. Sure. <laughs> Fortunately, my character was an idiot, so he didn't really lose much. <laughs> you know, Derek, too, I got to tell you. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've been following the show, but we've been covering the films of Terrence Hill, and he's yeah. he's acted a lot with this guy named Bud Spencer, and they're kind of like almost yeah. this comedy team. And there's this video game that someone created that you can get, which I actually have on my phone. It's, I meant to mention that, too, last time. It's not that great of a game, especially on the phone. I think it's better on the PC. But it's called Slaps and Beans, and it's basically you play either Bud Spencer or Terrence Hill, and in it you can do all the cool things that they get to do in the movies. <laughs> nice. You know, you get beer for fuel, uh, for you know, for health, and then you, get, you can get frying pans and smash them over people's heads and stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, you can get it on, uh, on PS4, too. Oh, jeez. PS4, Xbox, and Nintendo Switch. That's hilarious. How cool is that? I'd like to play it, but with a, with a remote, you know, the controller. I think playing it on the phone, it, it loses something. It's, it's a little more difficult to navigate. It's a side-scrolling beat-em-up game with some elements of platform and mini-games developed by Trinity Team Serials. It's the yeah. first official video game inspired by Italian duo actors Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill. First released in 2017 for PC, then ported in 2018, uh, also for PS4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch. So I'm probably going to get that on uh, PS4 because there you go. Um, that seems amazing. And it's crazy that 50 years later, someone made a video game about these guys. You know, how awesome is that? Yeah, I mean, people like what they like, and, you know, they, uh, you know, maybe their hope is... Like, hey, if we make this into a game, maybe people will buy it, and maybe people will be like, wow, what's the source material on this? But, I mean, there are games that people will buy. Like, I have a game that I think I spent, like, $2 on. It's called I Am Bread, and you play <laughs> as bread, and you, the goal is to, like, break things and knock stuff down off of, you know, counters and get from point a to point b by like rolling yourself you know you could be a baguette you could be a piece of toast you know, <laughs> you know it all depends on you know what you're doing like that's literally all it is is you you are bread that's hilarious oh my god all right so getting back to the film here we've got femi benusi <laughs> <laughs> femi benusi who plays alma she was hot she was also in the bloody pit of horror Hatchet for the Honeymoon, and she was in Stranger and the Gunfighter, if you recall that. And we, you know, we, we covered that on episode uh, one, and uh, we just covered it again on our Primer episode. But she was in a bunch of other films, and most of them I hadn't really heard of. But she was all right here. 
as the um the prostitute who uh was also getting slapped around by everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean I mean she was you know, she was serviceable, like that could have been honestly that could have been anybody. Yeah. Like it, it was, you know, like uh, Derek said earlier, it wasn't for her acting skills. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, are you willing to wear a, a sheer white outfit and, like, you know, dunk yourself in water and, like, get felt up by a creepy weirdo? Um, I guess. All right, you're hired. <laughs> well, that happened to Nina, didn't it? Oh, sorry. I was, I was looking, I was thinking of the wrong lady. Right, right. Alma was the one. She um, was the one that hooked up with. Uh, she was playing the guitar, right? Yes. Yeah, she was the one that hooked up with uh, Jaguar Man. After he's yeah. like, "You come upstairs with me, talk right. to me, tell me a story." <laughs> okay, I'm leaving. And then the hooker come up. <laughs> that was so funny. So I don't have anything much to say about the rest of the cast. Any of you guys have anything? No, I mean I thought they were serviceable. Not, yeah. Okay. Um, it wasn't like. Um, you know, the Ringo movies here, but so, um, you know, obviously this is a revenge tale and I had a question for both you guys. Um, it, cause I was just thinking about this while I was preparing for the show. Why do you think it is that revenge is such a common theme, not only in spaghetti Westerns, but also the Shaw brothers films? I think it's something that everybody can relate to. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, you always want to get back at somebody for something that they did to you, whether it's cutting you off in traffic or, you know, stealing your newspaper or taking the last muffin. Like, it doesn't matter, you know. Bloodthirst knows no uh, no bounds. And, you know, you can kind of live vicariously through these people. But, like, you know, you're always able to... And I think that's kind of why, you know, so many of these main uh, main heroes or anti-heroes sort of have no personality, you know, and they're so stoic. I mean, Terrence Hill absolutely has a personality, but like a lot of these right. stereotypical guys, you know, like Jaguar Man in, in today's film, uh, he has no personality outside of I wear a Jaguar poncho. Like that's his defining characteristic. You know, he's got that <laughs> monotone, like, ooh, leave that girl alone. Like he doesn't even have a Southern accent. Um, <laughs> I mean, like even Django had some, you know, some, uh, you know, some personality, some like, oh yeah, I'm here because, you know, yeah, I fought in the war. It's like, well, we don't like folks who fought for the North. It's like, okay. Uh, so, you know, and, and I don't know if it's the case with this one, uh, but I know that with a lot of the spaghetti westerns, almost all the dialogue was done in the dubbing stages, which is a lot of the Shaw brothers too, right? Because right? they didn't, you know, they couldn't control whether or not a plane was flying above their studio, you know. And with with this stuff, a lot of the sound was was not captured live on set, at least the dialogue. So depending on where it was being sent for distribution, they would have that crew do the voices in the, in the dubbing. So I wonder, like I said, I haven't looked into the production on this one. I'd have to dig a little deeper. I wonder who did the voice for our lead here in this. Um, you know, I mentioned Roger Brown earlier, just kind of briefly when you mentioned that Cairo movie. He was the president of, you know, the dubbing group over there for a long time and did a ton of dubbing work for a lot of these things. So, I, again, I don't know who did the dubbing on this one, but that might be a result of that. I mean, right. I, th I think part of it is also so you can, you know, as the uh, the the, uh, the males watching the, the movie, you can transpose your personality onto 
uh, whoever the anti-hero is. It's like, yeah, did you see me shooting all those bad guys? Right. Yeah. I think that's part of it. That you can live vicariously through it because, you know, even if you're not, you know, like, you know, dark-skinned and, and uh, bearded, you can still kind of like, yeah, that's how I would do. You know, and I'm, I guarantee you, you know, like I never... Uh, you know, never got to see one of these in a theater, but I could imagine, you know, lots of, you know, young teen kids, you know, strolling out of the theater with their thumbs in their belt loops, you know, kind of sauntering out like, yeah, that's what I would do in that situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, Derek, what are your thoughts on revenge as a common theme? Um, I mean, I think I think he nailed it with a lot of it. it's just kind of living vicariously through you know, the character is kind of imagining what you could do uh, to those in your life who have wronged you in some way, potentially. Uh, it's also a real simple framework to hang pretty much any kind of story to, right? I mean, it's 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 a real basic kind of, well, he, he did this to me, so I'm going to do this back. Well, there's your story. You know, <laughs> you can hang whatever you want on that. I also wonder if, if we go back through the history of, like, the Spaghetti Westerns, um, if we look to see which ones made a real big financial impact, if they just happen to be revenge stories and that's what the producers thought sold. So that's what we're going to roll out for the next 10 years. Right. Know, um, but yeah, I think overall it's a basic, it's a real basic story, basic story that appeals to our, our base instincts to get back at people, which isn't necessarily the most honorable way to live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Oh, you did this to me. Well, I'm going to get you back. You know, no, you know, but I, I do think it's a way to kind of exercise part of that part of ourselves for the films. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's definitely something that's part of the, the human condition because it clearly sure. crosses cultural borders because as uh, you know, Pat and I have commented on quite a bit throughout the episodes is that, you know, there are so many themes in common with Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti westerns. And, you know, of course, Revenge is one of them. It's one of the major ones, but it, it like I said, it crosses the cultural barrier. You know, they, those characters take revenge just as much as the western characters do and i i think that's a very interesting comment on the human condition um and of course by it being relatable takes the comment even further you know mm -hmm. <laughs> so moving on a little bit here i you know uh so ross returns home at the beginning which i assume is his home and this was a question i had maybe i got distracted and missed something i wasn't quite sure if he went to his the house where he grew up or was it like a, a monastery? Because he calls the guy father, but I wasn't sure if that was his father or was it a priest? And then he walks into that room and he sits down and the first thing he starts looking at is the the constellations, like the um, the horoscope, what do you call it, the zodiac, which yeah. was, I thought was interesting. But it looked like it was his room because of the way it was laid out and the way he just sort of comfortably walked into it. So what do you, is there something I'm missing here? <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of backstory and, and exposition that you don't get, especially in these films. You know, generally what we see and hear is, you know, oh, you killed my pa, or, you know, something like that. And, like, that's why they're there. Or they'll confide to the, you know, the, the, the love interest. Like, I'm only here to get my revenge. You know, you know, giving her a reason why they can't be together, you know. Yeah. And, you know, whatever the set pieces are and whatever happens to be, you know, in the background, you can kind of infer whatever you want. 
at least that's how I've always kind of taken unless they come out and specifically say it like in the uh you know the the Trinity films I think it was the Trinity film where you know Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer were brothers and then up like they were holding up the uh the stagecoach there and then they have given them all their money because the baby was sick right. um, <laughs> like unless it's like oh yeah that's your brother and i'm your pa and that's your mother and you know like unless it's you know specifically stated um it's kind of like you know it to add to the mystique of the character like maybe that wasn't his place but it was his brother's place and like that's why he's coming back there you know maybe he hadn't been there for years but you know he was there you know kind of almost like psyching himself up to you know really get the revenge juices flowing <laughs> revenge yeah, juices. You know. well at first the brother wasn't dead the brother was just all he knew was he went off to the um to the other farm uh, it begins with R. I can't think of it now. But the the father figure there says, "Oh no, he went to such and such a farm," and then that's when he, Ross puts it together because he had heard that the the um uh, what do you call the gang there, uh, Carranzo. Yeah, Carranzo. Uh, the Carranzo gang was headed there as well, and that's when he decides to go there. So when he first gets there, he's not thinking of revenge. But you're right, it could very well have been his brother's room and he sat down. But now that goes in line, too, with what they the, some of the descriptions said that um, he was an astrologer because that's the first thing he grabs off the desk is the Zodiac. Right, right. So, I, I mean, what did you get out of that scene, Derek? Did you think that was, you know, a, a, his home or a monastery or what? I got the impression it was his home. Okay. That was the impression that I got through all of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, like I said, you know, I think if you're... Unless they come out and say this is what it is, like it very well could be his home. You know, it could be like, you know, he's he's back and like, oh, my room is exactly the way I left it or my brother's room is exactly the way I left it or, you know, whatever, whatever happens to be the, the situation. Unless they come out and say one way or the other, I think they intentionally leave it open for interpretation. But yeah, like it, I just kind of let the story play out and I try yeah. not to think about it too much because generally that type of stuff doesn't it doesn't have like a huge impact on the plot right you know what i mean like it's it's usually just like oh you know here's a little bit of backstory that you can kind of piece together for the character um and you can make up your own mind what you think yeah and i tend to overthink some of the the smaller details in these movies (laughs) as you well know yeah but like there's nothing wrong with that because unless you're again unless they come out and say Ah, uh, yes. Back in my own room in my childhood home with my parents. Ah, my old book that I used to right. read that taught me about <laughs> astronomy. I wonder if this will come in handy later, like if there's an eclipse. Yeah. You know, unless they come out and, like, they're that blatantly obvious about it, which they never are, you know, you're free to interpret whatever you want, and I don't think there's really a wrong answer unless you're like, I don't even think he lived there, like... That might have been, like, somebody else's house, and he just showed up pretending to be this guy's brother. And, like, in in order to keep up the charade, he had to kill the entire gang because he didn't want anyone finding out that this wasn't (laughs) his brother. So it's like, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the guy he called father, though, like, clearly recognized him and greeted him, you know. 
I mean, was it his dad or was it a priest? Like that's what I want to know. <laughs> they don't make it explicit, so you could right. take that one way or the other. Although, given the time period, given the fact that he was like into science and astrology and astronomy or whatever, which way he, you know, however uh, he wants to be described, because as we've heard. We've each heard it described in a different way. He's an astronomer right. and he's an astrologer. So let's just say he does both. I'm guessing that that's probably not a priest. They'd be like, science? No. Just <laughs> focus on the Lord. That's true. That's true. And they did have the telescope there, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, another interesting scene, too, I thought well, that this was actually bizarre, was where... So the bad guys were going to set up the duel with Dan. And originally, the guy named Charlie was supposed to do it. But Tom really wanted to duel him for some whatever reason. He had a, you know, he, he just wanted to duel Dan. So he gives Charlie a watch. And Charlie just has this, his response is just weird. Like, he's just oddly enticed by it. And he accepts it. And he's like, okay, yo, I'll, all right, you can do the, the duel. And I just didn't get that. I mean, was there something between the lines that I wasn't reading there? Or did he just have an affinity for, you know, watches? Or <laughs> I mean, maybe he was like, oh, I'm giving you uh, this watch. And the other guy was like, oh, it's about time. Um, Duh. <laughs> but. Um, oh, that one hurt. Oh, stick around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, that one was painful. Um, but no, like, it, you know, it's it's. I think it was just one of those MacGuffins where it's like, you know, like the uh, the the emerald necklace that you see later on. Right. You know, I think it's just like, oh, hey, let's zoom in on this. You know, like had somebody else worn the uh, the jaguar poncho, and he would have been like, "Oh yeah, I can't do it with that guy. I already shot him in the face four times. Here's his <laughs> jaguar poncho." You know, like he he tells all the stories. You know, and can we just talk about how upset you would be if, like, you're in a funeral proce procession and some dude shows up and just starts shooting corpses in the face? <laughs> I love this that scene so much. It's so, it's so not. I mean, oh man, it is just so out there. Um, and like, oh, I'm totally it. cool with that scene. <laughs> like, this is something I could see in a Tarantino film, and it's Walton Goggins, like, you yeah. know, so paranoid, waiting for you know Kurt Russell or somebody to to show up and and kill him, that he's just like walking through and just like shooting corpses to make sure. But like, somebody would be like, hey. Why are you shooting these corpses in the face? And he's just like, shut the fuck up. You know, like <laughs> some kind of emotional response from the people carrying their dead relatives. Because I know <laughs> that if I was a pallbearer and I'm carrying, you know, one of my loved ones, you know, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm very distraught. And this dude just shows up and shoots them in the goddamn face. Like, I'm going to have some sort of response to that. You know, but everybody's just like, nope, we're super, super stoic. Like, <laughs> beyond Buddhist monk, like, if they were, like, deaf and blind, this response might have made sense. But they're just like, oh, oh, there's crazy Jeff, like, you know, just shooting corpses again. Like, that's what he does. But, like, and 
And, and then you have oh uh, Jaguar Man <laughs> popping out from underneath one of them. Right. It's like, how long was this funeral shroud? And it's like, let's see. Uh, I shot that corpse. I shot that corpse. Gee, the funeral shroud on that one drags all the way on the ground. Yeah. I wonder if there's anything. <laughs> none of the other ones do. Like, I wonder if anything wacky is going to happen. And then, like, he just pops out. So he would have had to have been, like, walking crouched underneath of this, waiting until, like, you know, maybe he was magic because it's like, all right, let me see. These guys want revenge. I bet he's going to come shoot corpses in the face. All right. This is, <laughs> this is the plan, guys. Like, this is the plan because this is the most likely course of action. I really hope he comes up from the side that, you know, is covered by the sheet because otherwise this whole thing is going to go south real quick. Um, but but don't worry. Don't worry. They're already dead. So. Yeah, but it's like it's unbelievable. Like, it's like how, oh, like that. That's you know when you're talking about like some far out wacky shit that happens in 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 uh, in westerns, like in spaghetti westerns. Like that's certainly one. Like I can understand the impulse of this guy. It's like all right, you know, he might try to sneak in in this funeral procession. Like, I'm gonna show him, and he was smart. Like he would shoot the corpse and then pull the sheet back like is that it? no nope that's not him is that it? nope that's not him oh fuck <laughs> third time's a charm you got me uh and then he <laughs> shot my other friends oh my god but like they give him they do give him like supernatural abilities oh you yeah know, you know there was that you know that whole um you know, the thing in, in uh, UHF with Weird Al where he's supposed to be Rambo and he like <laughs> just shoots and kills like all the bad guys at once. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, where do you think 80s action films got that trope? That's from Westerns where it's like, oh, I have a six shooter. There's 40 guys here. No problem. I'll get them all without reloading. Like it's like, oh, but I have I have a, two six shooters and a, a repeating rifle, and it's like, oh, at least with Django, he took a goddamn Gatling gun out of his <laughs> out of his thing. Like that made sense. It's like I was able to mow down everybody, but somehow missed the main characters. But I got all the extras. <laughs> but with these other ones, it's always like, oh, I have, oh, I only have six bullets left, and there's two hundred dudes. Right. I don't know what to do. Sorry. Can you guys no line way. up, stand in a row like they did in Deadpool? Can you guys like right. stand in a row? Because I only have like three bullets left. <laughs> oh man, he I definitely felt he had some kind of supernatural abilities. You know, he, he definitely seemed like he could teleport at the very least. Because oh, yeah. especially, you know, towards the end there. But I think even like what you mentioned under the casket. You know, he he couldn't have been there the whole time. He had to have teleported. Somehow. My back hurts if I sit too long in a specific chair. Like, imagine <laughs> hunched over <laughs> underneath a, a, a coffin, not a coffin, but like, you know, a, a stretcher, for back, lack yeah. of a, a better term. Like, just like kind of hunched over. And it's like, you're going to pop up and start shooting? No, you're not. No, you're not at your age. Like, you're 30. <laughs> That's like 80 in gunfighter years. Right. <laughs> like you're not just gonna pop up. You're gonna be you're gonna stand up and go, ah, sciatica. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna have the opportunity to <laughs> to just like, you know, gunfight your way through. I mean, I don't know, maybe he does Pilates. I have no clue. But it's definitely some some crazy stuff that goes on with that dude. 
And, you know, I think that absolute, like his obsession with science and, and you know, uh, the stars and astrophysics coupled with his ability to, uh, you know, just, again, have supernatural uh, uh, predetermination powers. Like, yeah, I would say that that, you know, it's understandable that he's magic. Right. <laughs> Now, do we ever find out if his uh, his Jaguar poncho is like actual Jaguar or just like Jaguar print? Like, do they ever talk about that? Because that would be something that I would be very interested so. in. Because, like, you know, normally it's just like, all right, yeah. this is a, a, you know, different print design, you know, whether it's, you know, striped colors or, you know, like, um, you know, like the square designs, you know, like, right. the, uh, like radiating squares or whatever. But he's got, like, Jaguar, so it's like, oh, we really like this pattern. We just got, you know, Jaguar. We dyed the cloth like this, or I killed yeah, I a Jaguar. They uh, never say. Because <laughs> that seems like it would take more than one Jaguar. Like You think? Well, I mean, somebody did the science yeah, I mean, for 101 Dalmatians, so if you were to kill 101 Dalmatian puppies, you can only get six coats. Oh, wow. So, I mean, one Jaguar... I mean, jaguars aren't huge. One jaguar, that's like 30 Dalmatians. <laughs> yeah, so you'd get one coat out of that. I don't know. I mean, we'd, we'd, have, to t we'd have to look into that. I don't know if my uh, oh. <laughs> taxidermy slash, you know, furrier <laughs> skills are, are not exactly uh, up to date here, but... Hey, Siri, how many Jaguars does it take to make a coat? Yeah, how many Jaguars would it take to make a poncho? Is it reversible? Like, we don't know if it's reversible. I found this on the web for how many Jaguars does it take to make a coat. Oh, that's funny. Wait, did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> what did it say? Um, what did it say? Interesting information about Jaguars. Fun facts about Jaguars. Jaguar animal facts. It talks about the spots on their coats. It, like, totally didn't get what I was oh, saying. Okay. But that's funny. I, did, I didn't even mean to actually ask the I, phone. I got all excited there. Like, oh, oh we're going to find out. I know. I was I was excited, too. I was like, oh, we're going to find out. It would take two and a half Jaguars. We're going to learn something. To make a poncho. <laughs> oh, man. It's possible, oh, too, man. that it was a print because of people who want to go hunting in the jungle. And they're going to wear something like that, maybe to scare off other predators. Or, uh, I don't know. I'm reaching for straws here. But, yeah, so... They never say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was an odd scene. And then there was another odd scene where when the, they got the two guys tied up to do the duel, and someone gives Carranza the gun to shoot the rope, which would start the duel, he almost couldn't do it because his hands were shaky. And they didn't really... Did they touch upon that kind of subplot later on in the film? Because I didn't really notice. I don't think so. Did they? Pat? I don't recall. Because I just thought that was odd to focus on that. It seemed like something important if he can't hit a target because his hands shake. And then they never followed up on that. So, who knows? Maybe he was just had a dry day, didn't drink anything, and had the DTs. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, um, the, moving on, when, they, when Dan is finally killed, they hang him with a sign over his... Uh, well, just hanging on him, I guess. And it was in Italian, so I translated it. It says, warning, if you stretch your ears too much, you can stretch your neck too. Which I don't think 
I guess that kind of applied to Dan. I guess it means if you eavesdrop on what the bad guys are doing, they're going to hang you. Yeah, like if you're listening, you know, you you hear too much, you know, you get a long drop, a short drop, and a sudden stop. If you stretch your ears too much, you can stretch your neck too. But I guess Dan wasn't even really listening in on them. So that's what I'm thinking too. Did you notice Dan walks into the place thinking, oh, the Ramirez's, that was the name of it, thinking the Ramirez's are going to be there. And there's no Sean Connery from Highlander. There's no family. There's just Sancho and his and his bad guys. <laughs> and so then he he's like in the middle of taking water and he's drinking water. He's looking around. He's like, oh crap, this is not the Ramirez. And he's he's about to leave. And then of course they nabbed him. But I I didn't really get that he they thought he was eavesdropping on him. And maybe that's what they thought. Yeah, I mean that yeah, that seems know. like an accurate statement but you know maybe they were just being overly cautious because i mean you remember when they they first met what's his name there jaguar man they're like oh this guy wears a jaguar poncho he's probably a marshal or something it's like oh yeah. yeah what like find out what he knows and shoot him in the face like right. <laughs> i mean they couldn't do the same thing they did to the other guy at the beginning and like oh we'll give him a gun and it doesn't have a cylinder in it right <laughs> Ay, ay, ay. So, um, was there a deleted scene? Did anyone find this? I could have sworn I read it, and I couldn't find it where uh, Ross, or Jaguar guy, cuts off Tom's hand after shooting him. Because he tosses the hand in front of, or to, I keep calling him Sancho, but uh, Carranza. I mean, maybe it's just like, hey, guys, give him a hand, or I don't know. Well, because he, he shoots him. <laughs> give the man a hand. He shoots him and the guy goes down and then he leans in with his knife and then they cut to or cut back because he was relaying that story. And then he he goes, well, this will prove because um, what's his name? Carranza was like, ah, I don't believe you. It's all you're full of crap or whatever. And he's like, well, this will prove it to you. And he tosses the hand on the ground. And I thought I read somewhere that that scene was cut from the original print. So I don't know. I don't recall seeing that. Yeah. It it wasn't overly graphic. I I might have I might have missed it, but they it also might have been cut because you know, like we talked about in the last episode, a lot of these movies were uh, you know like they people would decry them for the amount of you know violence that was uh, depicted in it. Right, but, right, and you know what? You watched the YouTube version, right? Uh, yes. So I wonder if that was not in the YouTube version. Um, even though I own this on Blu-ray, that's what I ended up watching today for this as well. Uh, just I was being lazy. Um, and I did notice there were a few jumps in the YouTube version. Oh, interesting. But nothing too distracting. Just a couple of things. It's clear that they cut it for YouTube. Um, specifically with her coming out of the bathtub in her negligee right, or right. whatever. It's like, she's in the bathtub and now she's not in. So, so did we lose a shot of her... Coming out and being extra clingy to her skin or whatever. Right, right. Okay, yeah. Interesting. Oh, on um, yeah, on Spaghetti Western Database, it says here, there are several versions of this movie in circulation with various running times and scenes either cut entirely or edited in a different order. Um, yeah. That's unfortunately too common. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, wait a minute. What was that? I just saw something. Hold on. Uh, the German VHS only runs 78 minutes and shows the executions of Sanbrelli, Gaddy, and Rojo in chronological order. In the longer versions, these scenes are shown as flashbacks during the duel in the eclipse 
of the English title. Some sources list Eugenio Martin as co-director, but his name doesn't appear in any of the credit sequences. Blah, blah, blah. All right, interesting. So anyway, so yeah, so there are other cu cuts of these films out there. And same thing is common with the, um, with the Shaw Brothers films, too. As we said in the last movie, there was the Seven Brothers Meet Dracula cut which was uh, much shorter than the regular one. Right. Yeah, so towards the end, you know, um, Ross appears and disappears like a ghost. Although he doesn't, like, just sort of disappear in front of our eyes. It's like Tom's looking to his right, and he sees his silhouette in the sh in the you know behind a rock, and then he, he steps back, and then he looks to his left, and all of a sudden he's, uh, you know, Ross is there. So um, I just like how they did that. It left it ambiguous. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to, you know, spell everything out. Plus, you know, with Westerns, there's always like, you know, as we saw with, you know, at least in theory with Django, like 600 sequels. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of times the sequels have nothing to do with the originals and all the characters change. Right. Um, yeah, Derek, I don't know if you uh, checked out our episode about uh, the the return of Ringo, but I was very unhappy with that film because all of the same actors came back, but they all played different roles. So I'd be like, oh, I can't wait to see the next Iron Man movie. Hey, look, there's Robert Downey Jr. Why is he playing a gas station attendant? Like, uh, aren't you Iron Man? Oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Gus, the pool cleaner. It's like, oh, well, there's, uh, there's uh, you know, Scarlett Johansson. She's back as Black Widow. Oh, uh, no, she is a uh, chauffeur. Right. Like, wait, what? It's like, why are you putting... Oh, at least Sam Jackson's back. Nope, sorry, I'm, a, uh, I'm the bad guy. I'm the CEO of LexCorp. Right. Even though this is a Marvel movie and not DC. It's like, wait, what? Huh? Yeah, it, it was so confusing, and it threw me off, and I was like... I really would have enjoyed this a lot more without this. At least, you know, Fernando Sancho is like the one constant, you know, like he's the same guy in every yeah. single movie. Right. <laughs> I want to talk about that movie. I don't remember the name of the title, but you played like this sleazy leader of a, of like a, an outlaw gang. And he's like, all right, where do you want to start? Well, let's start on uh, Robin Hood, Arrows, Beans, and Karate. Let's start with that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh man too funny i did love the eclipse when he points to the eclipse and everyone's like "Ooh," you know <laughs> like you said about the science and you know it's making it look like it was magic when in all obviously he knew there was an eclipse coming which would explain why he kept staring at his watch and looking at his, at the sun throughout the movie <laughs> i mean it's definitely a uh, uh a nod to like uh, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. I'm a witch, and I'm going to block out the sun. Oh, yeah, when? I, I don't remember exactly when. Any minute. Yeah. April 17th. Oh, I right. can remember that easy. Well, just to make sure, I'm going to carve it into your table. Right. Yeah, you, re you really don't have to. Nope. April 17th. <laughs> Are you going to tell me what's significant about that day? No, that's that's two days from now. Thanks. But like why why are you carving it into my table? So you'll remember. Yeah, but I don't know what the significance is. Oh, you'll see. I'm going down to that ranch. Great. I can oh, get you like man. a notebook. You can write down your appointments in there. Like a day planner. No. Right. Do you really have to carve them on the on my tables? Are you gonna are you gonna come back here? Like is this like where you're gonna stay? Nope, just passing through. 
<laughs> Coolsies. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. All right, so let's uh, let's wrap this up here, Derek. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on, or what are your final thoughts on uh, the requiem for a gringo? Well, I already kind of harped on the music a little bit. I love yeah. the music in this so much. Um, this is just phenomenal, uh, man. <laughs> um, I like I, I like to be able to have my soundtracks and my score collection. You know, on my computer, if not actual physically in disc in my hands. I, like I said, I can't find this anywhere other than on YouTube, and I've got it bookmarked. It's one of my go-to's when I need some inspiration for some Western stuff that I'm writing these days, and uh, it's just, it gets me going, man. And I just adore this film. It's one of my absolute favorite spaghetti westerns. Yeah, I, maybe it wasn't a good idea to have me on this episode, man, because all I'm doing is saying how much I love these <laughs> movies, which isn't really the best. You know, it's like. We're not really breaking down the movies. You're just listening to Derek gush about how much he loves them. But damn it, well, I you'll love have to them. join us more often. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, not everything, you know, you don't always have to come on and be like, you know what I hate about this? Everything, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's, and it's totally okay. You know, like, you know, you're you're a huge fan of these movies, but like, there's definitely stuff that like me as a first time viewer of this film, like I've pointed this out, and I'm sure you were like, oh yeah, that is a thing that happened. I think that's kind of funny that I never thought of it that way, you know, because we're having oh, sure, different sure, discussions. Yeah. Like you've seen this, you know, you you've watched this, you know, when you were younger, and like you have this specific nostalgia and these, you know. Uh, specific memories attached to seeing it so like you kind of overlook some of the things you know like i find myself now watching stuff that i watched when i was a kid like one of my favorite movies that i saw in the theater was masters of the universe i watched it you know recently because i bought the the vhs for 95 cents and i'm like (laughs) wow i'm so glad that they gave the guy who can't really speak uh in a in a clear and and uh uh you know concise uh speech pattern i'm sure glad he has all the all the uh all the main lines here this makes sense oh what great fight choreography like this guy looks like he's swinging a sledgehammer underwater and he's supposed to be a great swordsman. This is terrible. Like, Hey, Hey, that movie has a great soundtrack though. You have to, it does. and you know, don't get me wrong. I still love the movie. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. I'm at the point where I can point out flaws. I mean, Roger, one of the first times we worked together, uh, we, we talked about Jaws, and I talked That's about right. how it's one of the greatest films of all time, but there's this glaring issue of how did the shark's tooth get stuck point up in Ben Gardner's boat? <laughs> like, it would have been point down because that's how sharks bite. Right. So if anything, like, but it's it's a cool visual, so let's do it this way. And yeah. it's like, how? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's not possible. The only way you can pull a shark tooth out with its point up is if you're taking it directly from the shark's jaw. It's not going to be sunk in a piece of wood. Point up. So, 
you know, there's, there's flaws in everything, you know, and it might take you a couple of times. I just watched a video about Willy Wonka the other day, the, uh, yeah. you know, the Gene Wilder film, and something I never noticed, but the, the YouTuber pointed out, is in the scene when they're singing the Candyman song, and yeah. the uh, the Candyman goes to lift up the, the little divider on the counter to let all the kids behind so they can, like, ransack the store. Yeah. He absolutely clocks a little girl right in the jaw because she's standing <laughs> too close. He lifts the thing up and clocks her right in the jaw. Oh, my God. And now I will never be able to unsee that. The hell, man. Rewatch it. Like, that's a movie I've seen a hundred times, and I never noticed that. Right, also, I never have either. the next time you see it... Watch Grandpa Joe when he's licking the wallpaper. It's severely creepy. <laughs> it's way creepy. It's like that shouldn't be in a kids movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but That's yeah, funny. just just throwing those couple of things out there because you know, the, the lens you watch a film, especially something that you really enjoy, you're going to see it the same way over and over again until some jerk points out that, Hey, you know, it's really not as good as you <laughs> thought. Um, but yeah, like there's nothing wrong with coming on and saying like, yeah, I really enjoyed this. You know, there is enough negativity in the world. There's enough negativity on the internet. You know, there are plenty of people that'll come out and just be like, yeah, this was terrible. Well, why was it terrible? Oh, you see when the, the guy, because he was gonna, but then the thing, you know, and like the people just get, just want to get <laughs> angry and, and, you know, shit on something, you yeah. know, it's totally fine to yeah. be like, yeah, I like this. Like I love, you know, most of the Shaw brothers films that we watch. That doesn't mean that, you know, I, I won't say like, Hey, this was awesome. But remember when the guy got impaled and ran 25 miles only yeah. to like deliver some exposition and then promptly die. Like that was convenient, wasn't it? Like, but that doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film. Right. You know, most of these, you know, as we, as we spoke about, like most of these Westerns, most of these Shaw brothers films have the same basic plots, but it's the different characters. It's the different settings. It's the different, you know, ways of telling the story like, again, we've seen Fernando Sancho as the same character in three different films, but each of those performances has been unique, even though he's playing essentially the same guy over and over and over again. Right, right. Same with Terrence Hill. Like, you know, the, the Boot Hill trilogy and then the, the, uh, the Trinity. Or, Movies, yeah. It, he was essentially the same guy. But he played the characters in a different way, like even acting off of Bud Spencer, like they still had that uh, camaraderie and that, you know, that, that great relationship between the two of them. But it's a they're different characters each time, even though they're very, very, very similar. Um, the situations are different and like they they handle them differently. I mean, yeah, they have their trademarks like, oh, Terrence Hill has to do a backflip or, you know, climb something, you know, because that's just what he does. Right. Um, a full so, triple axle, you know. Yeah, like there's there's nothing wrong with with, you know, coming on and being like, oh, you know, I hate the fact that I, you know, really like this movie. No, like 
you like what you like, you dislike what you dislike. You know, as long as you can have a, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you can have a rational reason why, like, yeah, I didn't like it because of A, B, and C, but I did like X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah, as long as there's a healthy balance. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've done a podcast where, you know, I had to talk to a, a writer or a director and their movie was just god awful. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I liked your pants in that one scene. <laughs> those were those were pretty snappy. Who's your tailor? Um, is that off the rack or is that that custom? You know, like you you try to find something that you can talk about. Yeah, like your pants. <laughs> That's my takeaway, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, there you go. This movie's got awesome pants. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can see he's going to need new shoes because he's going to wear out his shoes from kicking everyone's ass all the time. <laughs> it's stuff, man. Oh, man. But yeah, yeah. You know, it's awesome that you love these movies. You know, I, I really loved it, too. I just had never seen it before. I walked in loving... Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, and I, I wasn't sure. I couldn't yeah. remember what you thought about it, Derek, because I, I don't think you, I guess you didn't talk about it, but I just wasn't sure how you guys were going to react to it. I just feel like, not not I feel, I felt like, you know, ooh, I wonder if they're going to like it or not, because there's this wrong with it and that wrong with it. You know what I mean? And it's like, it. That is always one of my fears when I have somebody on, like, my show to talk about a movie that I really like, that... I will th not that I don't mind talking about movies with people that they dislike the movie. I just hate feeling like I wasted some right. time. And I'm glad I didn't waste your time when I steered you toward yeah. Cream for Rico. No, this was awesome. This was awesome. I recommend it. Pat, did you give your final thoughts on it? Uh yeah, I think I uh, I rambled far enough. Like okay. I definitely would uh I definitely would recommend this to people. I think it was uh a lot of fun. I don't think I'd put it in my top five of the films that we've watched so far. Cause I mean, you know, like I mentioned with, uh, with Django, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the just stoic, no personality, anti-hero character. I mean, like even Lee Van Cleef, like I said in last week's show, like Lee Van Cleef is, you know, he'll be sarcastic and, you know, you know, kind of funny, you know, even if he's still being like, you know, terrifying at the same time, um, he still has, right. you know, a bit of jocularity to him, a bit of, uh, not fun, but like lightheartedness, you know? Um, right. but like these guys, it was just like, there's no personality. Like, what am I rooting for? It's like, okay, you're scary and you wear a Jaguar coat. Okay. Like some of these other guys, like this guy dresses in all black. This guy has a scar on his face. This guy has like weird teeth. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody has like some distinguishing characteristics. So you can at least tell apart who the lieutenants are in the bad guy's army or in like in the good guy's group of friends. It's like, oh, this guy has glasses and a high pitched voice, you know, like. Right. It's just a. a, a visual storytelling device to kind of, you know, help you keep track of who's who. But otherwise, like, if that's the extent of your character development, meh. Like, I, I'm not a, a huge fan of those. Like, that's why I think I prefer, you know, uh, Giuliano Gemma and, uh, and Terrence Hill, because they have personalities and they're badass. Like, you know, I, en I enjoy their, their, uh, 
their characters. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this movie. I kind of agree with that, that, you know, he um, the main character was a bit stoic. Um, could have had a little more personality, although I don't know how they could have put that into the storyline. Um, but this was a movie that I had to watch a couple of times to really get the gist of it and, you know, pick up things that I missed around the first time around. Um, but I it's definitely, definitely a solid spaghetti western, and uh, I highly recommend it. Recommend it. I cannot speak today because we've been talking for almost three hours. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's definitely a so, solid spaghetti dinner. I mean, a solid, sp <laughs> solid Western spaghetti dinner. Um, we'll get, all right, never mind. I'm not going to go there. So, Derek, <laughs> Derek, can you tell the listeners where they can find you online? Uh, so, if you want to listen to uh, me talk about monster movies with my friends, monsterkidradio.net is the easiest place to go. Uh, however, I have what's called a link tree set up. Um, that's uh, uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, -E, and then slash, put my name in there. And I was doing that thinking that would be a lot easier for people to find me if I just had it all in one spot and put it under my name, but then I realized and remembered that my last name is pronounced differently than it's spelled. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's uh, D-E-R-E-K, and then he's my initial M, and then K-O-C-H. I'll send this link to Roger. I yep, don't know if yep, you have the ability absolutely. to think the show notes or whatever, but if you go there, you'll find links to my podcast, my various YouTube projects, my book, uh, my gaming stuff, even my Amazon wish list. So awesome. it's all there. Awesome, man. Get to join us again, too. We had great fun today. Yeah. This was awesome, dude. Of course, man. Of course. This was dope. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Derek. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for The East Meets the West today. You can check out more episodes as well as our sister show, Then Is Now Podcast, in which we discuss all the cool stuff you may have missed out on at our website, havenpodcasts.com. And don't forget, The East Meets the West is uh, part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so uh, don't forget to check out all the great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also find me on thedorkening.com, uh, The Loudest Sports Show, Throwdown Thursday, Shark Bites, and uh, also the uh, Facebook groups of the same names. Send us your thoughts on today's episode to the East Meets the West 42 at gmail.com. And check out our East Meets the West YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1. And you'll find all our podcasts there plus other fun stuff. And be sure to not only hit the subscribe button, but also share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Yeah, and go to wherever you download your podcasts and wherever you listen to your shows and uh, leave a review. Uh, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And uh, the more reviews you get, the more easier it is for other folks to find the show. So if you enjoy it, uh, please help spread the word. And uh, like I said, the more reviews we get, uh, the more we'll show up on search engines. That's right, folks. That's right, folks. So thanks so much for joining us this week. Join us again on the next episode of The East Meets the West. The West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. Uh, that sounded really enthusiastic. Let's get into it. All right, so. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so, like, I don't know, let's get into it. Whatever. Yeah, you know. Is that what we're doing? 